0: Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It is a busy news day. But first, I wanted to take a minute, very busy news day. But we're going to take one minute to mention some really exciting news of our own. Yesterday, CNN CEO Chris Licht announced that my girl Caitlin Collins will be the new host of the 9 p.m. hour opposite side of the day. I know. Um, Just what I got this into this,
1: this whole, you know, waking up
0: at 3.30, <laughs> yeah. everything, I had a down pat. I, I almost brought go. you a trash can and an alarm clock so you could literally throw your... You're never going to have to set an alarm clock. It's a pretty great thing. We're very excited. Yes. It's very be, excited for you. It's going to be very exciting. It'll be fun to do
1: interviews and have yes. good conversations at 9 yes. o'clock, but I'm really going to miss you, obviously, and I'll be watching I'm every miss single you morning. i
0: too. And, of course, I'm going to miss you. You've been... Everything to me, I won't but um, be that far away. but what is also going to be great is your reporting that you do all day on everything in Washington can really be highlighted and featured at nine. So I'm excited for that. There's a lot going on, and I will see you a lot. So we have about a week left with Caitlin, <laughs> thank goodness. But let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, May 18th. The suspect behind that big leak of military secrets was repeatedly warned about his mishandling of classified documents, but still was never removed from his post. This is according to new court records. Also,
1: President Biden has just landed in Japan ahead of a summit with G7 world leaders. He may be abroad, but he unfortunately can't escape the pressure of the big domestic issue that is facing both him and Republicans in Washington. Moments ago, he ignored a shouted question on
0: the debt ceiling. And the cab driver who drove Harry and Meghan during an alleged paparazzi chase tells and the couple was nervous and scared. Harry and Meghan described the ordeal as a near catastrophic chase. Also, Me- <laughs> meantime, Montana has become the first state to ban TikTok altogether. The law, however, does not go into effect until January. Legal challenges, of course, expected. And
1: a who-done-it has now been solved, as the FBI has charged a Minnesota man for stealing Dorothy's ruby red slippers from The Wizard of Oz over 20 years ago. Scene of This Morning starts right now. Who steals Dorothy's slippers? But also to think you got away with it for 20
0: years and then the FBI comes knocking (laughs) on your door and they're like, top priority for the feds. We'll get into that. But happening right now, President Biden in Japan for a major summit with allies as the war rages in Ukraine. At the same time, the clock is running out back home to raise the debt limit and prevent economic catastrophe. Moments ago, reporters tried to ask the president about it during a meeting with Japan's prime minister.
2: The bottom line, Mr. Prime Minister, is that... uh, When our countries stand together, we stand stronger. And I believe the whole world is safer when we do. So thank you again for having me here today. And we look forward to the next several days.
0: If that was hard to hear, the main question was, Mr. President, can you guarantee the U.S. won't default?
1: You know, I was looking. I don't think any of the other G7 leaders that he's going to a meeting with, I don't think any of other countries have a
0: debt ceiling. So
1: they don't even like, have what, this. What is going on? Why, yes. you, why can't you guys just come to an agreement on this? And
0: get it together. That's right. So we'll, we'll talk to Phil Mattingly in a little bit about what this sort of looks like for the U.S. on the world stage right yeah. now. President Biden, as you saw, didn't respond to the shouted questions. He's facing a really tough juggling act right now at home.
1: It is a tough juggling act. And as we noted, he's in Japan. This is a summit with G7 world leaders that was obviously previously scheduled. But the president is under growing pressure from allies as well to give Ukraine fighter jets that they believe would help turn the tide against Russia's brutal invasion. This trip was also supposed to showcase unity against China. But the White House is cutting the trip short by two stops so the president can race back to Washington for those talks on the debt ceiling. There's only two weeks left to reach a deal with House Republicans before the U.S. government would potentially default on its debts. As Poppy noted, Senate's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, is live in Hiroshima traveling with President Biden. Obviously, Phil, we know the president has a busy schedule here, but this is you know such a rare moment where the president is on a world stage, but his domestic issues have followed him abroad.
3: Yeah, Caitlin, what you just saw there in terms of ignoring that question as the press was trying to get some kind of answer related to what's going on back home is just kind of an acute window into a very delicate balancing act that will define the next several days. And that's not because the issues are not of import here in Hiroshima, when you talk to U.S. officials, they are very cognizant that on two fronts in particular, the ongoing war uh, in Ukraine from Russia's invasion, as well as uh, the continual rise, tensions, uh, and major issues when it comes to China will be central. And yet, particularly on that latter point, the president having to cut his trip short, not going to Papua New Guinea, not going to Australia, underscores just how difficult things are. And Caitlin, you would know this well, Bruce Reed, the president's deputy chief of staff, doesn't often go on foreign trips. He's on this trip in large part because of his central role in those debt ceiling negotiations, at least in terms of the policy side of things. But the focus very clearly will be on those central issues uh, with Ukraine, with China and with G7 leaders, which have remained remarkably united throughout the course uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in terms of uh, economic sanctions, in terms of assistance to Ukraine, and most particularly in terms of defensive assistance of Ukraine. There's still some very serious issues to deal with on that front as well. But also, the president, since he's been in office, has been trying to pull particularly European leaders into uh, an alliance in terms of the posture as it relates to China. And that will be a focal point as well. So certainly issues back home, but the issues here are critical. Certainly, what the president wants to focus on.
4: Phil, so what's
0: really interesting is that at his first G7 in 2021, the message was clearly America's back. But now he comes to this G7 having to cut two part- legs of this three leg trip off, and he's got a mess at home when it comes to our economy.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I was speaking with some European diplomats who were already in town a couple of hours ago, and this is my question to them, and really has been, I think, for the last several years, the level of... UNSETTLED ANXIETY IN THE FOUR YEARS PRECEDING THIS ADMINISTRATION, PARTICULARLY WITH EUROPEAN ALLIES. Mm -hmm. Uh, ONE OF THE PRESIDENT'S TOP PRIORITIES WHEN IT CAME TO INTERNATIONAL ISSUES WHEN HE CAME IN, AND CAITLIN KNOWS THIS AS WELL AS ANYBODY, uh, WAS TRYING TO MAKE CLEAR THAT, IN HIS WORDS, AMERICA IS BACK. AMERICA IS BACK ON THE WORLD STAGE. AMERICA IS BACK IN A LEADERSHIP POSITION. AND MY QUESTION REPEATEDLY OVER THE COURSE OF THE LAST DAY OR TWO HAS BEEN, Do you think that's actually the case when two things are going on? One, we have this kind of domestic issue when it comes to the debt limit right now, a very real possibility that the U.S. defaults for the first time in its history. But also given the fact that the former president, President Trump, is leading Republican polls uh, to be the nominee by a significant margin, how does that make officials feel? You know, one European diplomat told me, Uh, We're used to it. When it came to the debt ceiling, they assume there will be a resolution here and they understand what the president has to do. As of 2024, the official said, just don't want to talk about things that I don't want to think about right now. And I think that's a good kind of encapsulation. So all be happening behind the scenes and definitely about conversations. But will they bring this up publicly? Probably not. They want to try and address the now, worry about the future a little bit later. Sure.
0: Uh, Phil Mattingly. Fascinating. Thank you very much. And now
1: we want to go to a CNN exclusive report. There is new evidence coming into Jack Counsel, excuse me, Jack Smith, the special counsel and in his investigation into former President Trump's mishandling of classified documents. The National Archives is now set to hand over 16 records showing that the former president and his advisors knew about the correct way to declassify documents. That comes after Trump claimed several times that he had declassified them, quote, automatically.
2: If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. I have the right to declassify documents, and the process is automatic if I take them with me. It's automatic. By the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. But no, you why? Have to declassify them. Let me them. ask
1: you. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paula, obviously they do not become automatically declassified. We know that. But what is it that the special counsel is getting now? Because we've seen how this investigation has been ramping up. What's happening here?
5: We know the special counsel is looking at whether anyone should be charged with mishandling classified documents. And in order to do that, prosecutors would have to prove that an individual knowingly removed them without proper authorization. And according to this letter, which was exclusively obtained by our colleague, Jamie Gangel, the archives reveals that these 16 records could give us some insight into just how much the former president was aware of the process. They say, quote, the 16 records in question all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors. Some of them directed to you personally, referring to Trump, concerning whether, why and how you should declassify certain classified records. So these could potentially establish his awareness of the process. But he and his attorneys have argued that, again, he automatically declassified these or was able to do so with his mind. Look, that's not something that the courts have actually contemplated. So this is all part of the work that the special counsel is doing right now.
0: What does that mean in terms of whether they will get those documents?
5: It's a great question, Poppy. As of right now, according to this letter, the Archives is going to hand this over to the special counsel next week on the 24th, unless the Trump team moves to intervene. Now, I'm told by a source familiar with their thinking that they might try to get a court to intervene here. They say they don't expect to be successful, as they have not had a great track record with blocking Smith from getting a lot of evidence, but they may still file a challenge just to protect what I'm told are constitutional and presidential protections. Now, I will also note this has the added uh, impact for them of continuing to delay this investigation. And historically, the former president has used that as a tactic in most of his legal entanglements.
1: Yeah. And of course, this comes after we've now learned that National Archives officials have testified back in March that all administrations dating back to Reagan mishandled classified documents, some in very different ways. Paula Reid, thank you so much.
0: Great reporting from Paula and Jamie and that team. This morning, prosecutors say the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman accused of leaking highly sensitive military documents on social media was actually warned repeatedly not to do that, warned that he was mishandling classified intelligence. Air Force me- mem- a memoranda detail three separate instances since September of Jack Teixeira's alleged misconduct. These new revelations come days before a judge will determine whether he stays behind bars ahead of his trial or Natasha Bertrand is following all of this from the Pentagon. I could not believe, I couldn't believe this headline when I read it, that there were multiple warnings and still he had access to all of this.
6: That's right, Poppy. So the first warning apparently came in September of 2022 when his superiors actually saw him taking notes on classified intelligence and told him to stop. Now, the next warning came in October uh, of 2022, where he was uh, in a briefing, essentially, and he was asking very... uh, deep questions, deep dive questions into intelligence really that had nothing to do with his job. And the uh, superiors there told him that he needs to really focus on his actual duties, which, of course, were uh, related to IT. He was essentially an IT person for the Air National Guard there in Massachusetts. And so there was essentially a cease and desist order for him to stop doing these deep dives into uh, this kind of intelligence. Then in January of 2023 of this year, he was again observed uh, doing these kind of deep dives into intelligence and he was warned, again, by his superiors not to do it. It does not seem like he was actually reprimanded at that point by his commanders, but it was uh, noted in these Air National Guard memos that he was looking at things and looking at intelligence that he was not supposed to be doing. And we should note that the uh, commanders there actually offered him... A new position, if he wanted to uh, look into this intelligence more, if he wanted more uh, kind of exposure to it in a way that actually comported with his duties, they offered to move him into a new job that would allow him to do it. So instead of really taking away his access to this classified information after three strikes against him, essentially, uh, they offered to simply move him into a new job. Now, we did reach out to the Air National Guard uh, for comment. They said they cannot comment right now because it is an ongoing investigation, but they did suspend two commanders in his unit pending the outcome of this investigation. And the entire intelligence mission was actually taken away uh, from this unit pending uh, the completion of the investigation. So we'll see how this shakes out on Friday when he has his hearing uh, where a judge is going to determine whether or not he's going to stay behind bars. But prosecutors arguing, look, he needs to stay there because clearly he has a disregard here uh, Mm -hmm. for this kind of classified and national security information.
0: That's interesting how that would play into the judge's decision. Clearly, Natasha, thanks for the reporting.
6: Also
1: this morning, Montana has just become the first state in the U.S. to ban TikTok on personal devices. The governor there, Greg Gianforte, says that he signed the bill on Wednesday to protect Montana's personal and private data from being gathered by China. The popular video app sharing app is owned by China-based ByteDance. And there has been growing concern inside the United States that the Chinese government could potentially access U.S. data via TikTok for spying purposes. So far, we should note there's no evidence that the Chinese government has ever actually accessed personal information of U.S.-based TikTok users, but it's a growing concern happening on Capitol Hill and in Washington. TikTok tells CNN it plans to defend the rights of users in Montana. TikTok has about 7,000 employees in the U.S. I should note the ban goes into effect next year, but it is almost certainly going to face legal
0: challenges. And as I was reading, there's a $10,000 fine in this law, for people that break the law. If, I mean, if it if it stand, withstands court challenges, that's fascinating. And it's
1: definitely going to have a court challenge. What's interesting about it, though, is that this is about even personal use. You've seen a bunch of governors right. ban it on government that's devices. The Obviously, they have more leeway there. But when it comes to personal use, it, there is a lot of concern about it. It's been floated to have a national ban, I mean, if it actually happens. Who knows?
0: It's going to be interesting if other states follow Montana's lead as well. Uh, yeah. Speaking of other states and other key issues, let's talk about South Carolina being one step closer this morning to banning most abortions after just six weeks. Last night, the state house there voted 82 to 33 to send the bill back to the state's Republican-controlled Senate. Democrats tried to stall that process. They filed more than a thousand amendments. The bill would ban most abortions after early cardiac activity is uh, detected. A time before many women, we should note, doctors say, even though they are pregnant. There are a few exceptions, including for fatal fetal abnormalities, the health and life of the mother, and exceptions up to 12 weeks for cases of rape, incest or underage pregnancy. Let's go to our Amara Walker. She is live for us in Atlantic. Good morning.
7: Are, are there other legislative options left for Democrats or is this it? It looks like this is it, Poppy, unless the Republican-controlled Senate unexpectedly reverses course once it gets the House bill, but that seems highly unlikely. So the one option the Democrats did have, Poppy, uh, in the South Carolina House, was to delay passage of the six-week abortion ban. But given that the Republicans have the supermajority, it was inevitable that this bill would pass even after 20 hours of debate uh, and two days. Uh, So look, this has been quite a contentious issue within the Republican Party in South Carolina. As you know, uh, both um, the Republicans control both chambers, but for months they were at an impasse and they had disagreed over just how restrictive an abortion ban should be in the state. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the Senate actually blocked a near total abortion ban where you saw several Republican women voting against it. But prior to that in February, The Senate did pass uh, um, a less restrictive abortion ban, which was this uh, Senate Bill 474, uh, which was a six week abortion ban. And so now the House has done the same. Where do things go from here? So this bill, which has a few changes to it now, goes back to the South Carolina Senate. And then uh, once uh, the bill passes the Senate, then it will go to the Republican governor, Henry McMaster, who has indicated he will sign this bill. And until then, it is legal to have an abortion in South Carolina up until 22 weeks of pregnancy, Poppy. Emma Walker, thank you for the update.
0: So conflicting accounts emerging from what? Uh, Prince Harry and Very conflicting. Very conflicting. We'll get into it. And Meghan Markle described as a, quote, near catastrophic car chase right here in New York City. We're going to hear from one of the cab drivers who intervened.
1: Also fellow New York lawmakers, Jamal Bowman and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Quite a moment here, heckling the embattled Republican George Santos on the steps of the Capitol yesterday. You can see him here. We're going to show you. It was quite a screaming match that actually ensued. We'll show you more of this video next.
4: The party has to kick him out. He's embarrassing y'all.
1: He's embarrassing y'all. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
0: New and conflicting details this morning about what happened to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle on the streets of New York City. The couple's spokesperson described the incident as, quote, a near catastrophic car chase at the hands of a ring of highly aggressive paparazzi. That's a quote. But there are conflicting accounts about the extent of the danger and how long it lasted. Joining us now is Max Foster. Max, uh, good morning to you. I mean, obviously, we all think about Princess Diana and how she died, of course, and that is haunted Prince Harry. What do we know about the taxi driver who drove them at one point in all of this?
8: Um, Well, they changed cars a couple of times, as I understand it, from someone that was in uh, the entourage of uh, Harry and Meghan. And the taxi was less than 10 minutes of that journey. So they are basically suggesting we shouldn't over what the taxi driver uh, experienced. The longer, more than like hour, two-hour journey uh, was a chase. We know that it was a chase. It wasn't a high-speed chase. We've learned that. And to be fair to the Sussexes, they never actually said it was. And as you say, all of this is much more traumatising to Harry because of what he went through as a child.
9: I didn't feel like I was in
10: danger. But, you know, uh, Harry and Meghan, they look very nervous.
8: More than 25 years after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, her son, Prince Harry, and his wife, Meghan, claimed they were chased by paparazzi in what the couple's team is calling a near-catastrophic car chase. <laughs> Prince Harry, Meghan, and her mother, Doria Ragland, attended the Women of Vision Awards at the Ziegfeld Ballroom in New York City. Meghan was honoured for her global advocacy to empower women and girls. <laughs> But it wasn't until they left the event that things allegedly escalated. A local law enforcement source tells CNN a, quote, swarm of paparazzi followed them in cars, motorcycles and scooters. The convoy eventually went to the 19th precinct, where the couple waited until they could safely leave. Chris Sanchez, a member of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's security detail, says they switched cars more than once during the chase. They were first seen in a black car, and then a yellow cab. The driver of that cab says he noticed the paparazzi before as the couple's security guards started to tell him the address to drive to.
10: And as soon as he's about to say where they're going, all of a sudden the paparazzi just stormed the
8: taxi. He says he saw six paparazzis total.
9: When the paparazzi started taking pictures, of of I heard from the back, somebody said, oh my God, you know? And then the look on their faces,
10: you can tell that they were nervous and scared.
8: That's when the Sussex's bodyguard told him to return to the police precinct. The NYPD, who provided assistance to the Sussex's security team, says the paparazzi made the transport of Harry and Meghan challenging, but there were no reports of collisions, injuries or arrests. The couple's security teams say the Duke and Duchess and their convoy were pursued by the paparazzi for more than two hours, allegedly resulting in multiple near collisions with other drivers, pedestrians and two NYPD officers. Adding the Sussexes, who were staying at a private residence on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, did not want to compromise the security of their friend's home. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has questioned the validity of that two-hour time frame, but says nothing like this should ever happen in a city as dense as the Big Apple, calling the incident reckless and irresponsible. You shouldn't be speeding anywhere, but this is a densely populated city. And I think all of us, I don't think there's many of us who don't recall how his mom died We've actually heard from one of the agencies that uses photos from the photographers that were uh, chasing that car, suggesting that one of the cars in the Royal Motorcade was actually driving recklessly. So there are different perspectives on this. Meanwhile, here in London, um, no comment from any of the palaces. And actually, the Royal engagements are just continuing as normal this morning. Wow.
0: Max Foster, thank you for the reporting. Also back here in the
1: U.S., the man who was accused of killing four University of Idaho students back in November has now been indicted by a grand jury. The latest on that case and Brian Koberger ahead. A grand jury has indicted the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students in November, with a court official saying that Brian Koberger is facing four counts of murder and one count of burglary. He's now set to appear in court on Monday. Investigators accuse him of stabbing those four students to death at a home near their school. The quadruple murder shocked the campus and the small community there. It sent cops on a month and a half long search for Koberger. CNN's Gene Cazares is here. Gene, what do we know about this indictment and what's next for Brian Koberger? You
11: know, Caitlin, what we know is we are surprised. This came out of the blue. Now, prosecutors under the law can go to a grand jury at any time, but... The, the state of the case right now is it's in the lower court to be bound over to the district court for trial. But it was all set. There was going to be a preliminary hearing, right. which was out in the open. It's set for the end of June, for the week of the June. Witnesses would take the stand. People would listen to their testimony, cross-examination by the defense, very out in the open. Unbeknownst to anybody, they went and convened a grand jury that heard testimony, but will never know who testified because the document came out yesterday, all the witnesses are sealed. And a grand jury is very secret. It is secret testimony, basically. And so they determined, the grand jurors, from that community, that the case should be bound over for trial. So now it is in district court. Uh, he will appear on Monday, he will enter a plea, mm. and then it will proceed to trial. It is surprising
0: uh, that you would... Um, convene a grand jury for this. At this this
11: point, because they could have done it right away. They could have done it right after he was charged. And so, remember, there's a very encompassing gag order here, right? And parties can't talk. um, No one is talking. And so the only way you can get information is through the legal documents. Now, the pros and cons to that are that you want a fair trial. Brian Koberger deserves a fair trial of an impartial jury. And Mm -hmm. when too much is out, then that is at risk. Prosecutors don't want to taint the jury pool. They want that jury from Moscow because that's the community where this happened. So I think that is the point. But you also have those constitutional rights that that people deserve to know. They have a right to know.
1: Yeah. Well, keep us updated if there's any more developments in this surprising
0: developments. I will. Thank you. Meantime, drama, literal, actual drama back and forth. Heckling on the steps of the U.S. Capitol yesterday after the House voted to refer a resolution to expel Congressman George Santos to the Ethics Committee. This move allows House Republicans to avoid directly weighing in on whether he should be expelled, at least right now. But some New York Democrats made sure they were heard, as Santos addressed reporters on the House steps.
12: To save yourself economy. like i said if, if i could if i could Have understand you dignity. over my colleagues screaming here the reality new york is,
2: is, is needs be, better.
13: Santos, you gotta go man come on son. how's your ethics how's on, your ethics on, play going
12: aren't you,
3: aren't you the-
0: that was new york congressman jamal bowman you just heard from heckling santos the chaotic scene continuing as georgia republican marjorie taylor green stepped in to defend santos
5: it's embarrassing no,
4: Biden. y'all. Biden Impeach a Biden for what? You've got to get him up. Expel him. you got to expel. Save the party. Nice. The party's hanging by right, a we thread. Got, we got to get rid of Biden. The party is hanging by a thread.
14: You've got to save the, the, to save the, Impeach save the party. Impeach Listen, Biden. No Impeach more QAnon.
0: Biden. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill this morning. Quite a scene in front of everyone. Yeah, Bobby, quite a scene. That is the same staircase that lawmakers
15: walk out toward every night when they leave after votes. So it just shows you sort of the explosion of emotions that came yesterday after this vote to refer this resolution to expel George Santos from Congress back to the House Ethics Committee. That was a punt, as some Democrats put it, a cop out from Republican leadership. Because Democrats brought a privileged resolution that they hoped would be a vote to actually oust George Santos from Congress once and for all. Of course, that would have taken two-thirds votes. Instead, what they got was just a simple majority vote over this question of whether or not this matter should be referred back to the House Ethics Committee. That passed along party lines yesterday, Poppy, but George Santos vehemently defending himself outside the U.S. Capitol after the vote. Here's what he said.
12: I was elected by them to come represent them. I will continue to do that. I have not not done my job since I've gotten here. Uh, I can chew and walk gum at the same time. I can chew gum and walk at the same time and I'll continue to do that.
15: It's important to remember that George Santos is not currently serving on any committees here on Capitol Hill. It's also important to note that the House Ethics Committee is looking into this issue already, was looking into this issue before the vote yesterday to refer the question of expulsion back to them. But Kevin McCarthy made clear to our colleague Manu Raju that the House Ethics Committee is going to look into this and does not care whether or not the Department of Justice is also looking into it. He said that that would not affect their decision to continue their investigation. That's a very important note here because that could point to the fact that the Ethics Committee is continuing to pursue this despite
1: a federal investigation. It's
0: really interesting, Lauren Fox. Thank you.
1: Also this morning, Ukraine is saying that they downed 29 out of 30 cruise missiles that were launched by Russia and what authorities in Ukraine are saying is a countrywide air attack. It is the ninth one we've seen just this month alone. Only 18 days into May will take you to the ground ahead. We're tracking the latest developments out of Ukraine. Overnight, explosions were heard throughout the capital of Kiev and other Ukrainian cities and regions. As authorities said, there was a countrywide air attack. This as fierce fighting has continued around that embattled eastern city of Bakhmut that we have been telling you about for several months now. Ukraine has been gaining some ground there in recent days. And CNN has obtained new satellite imagery that shows just the devastating toll that fighting has taken on the city over the last year alone. This all is happening as Ukraine is preparing for that long-awaited counteroffensive to reclaim occupied land that Russia took when it invaded Ukraine. With us now to talk more about this is retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Thank you, of course, for being here. So we're talking about Bakhmut, which is this key city that they have been fighting over. We talked about it last week with the Russian mercenaries and whether or not they were going to withdraw. This image right here is so striking to me. This is Bakhmut a year ago, and it just looks completely torched. What happened exactly? What weapons were used to take it from this to this. Yeah,
16: Caitlin, an example of, you know, Russian war crime. This is a thermobaric weapon, firebombing fire fundamentally, weapons that are designed to do nothing but cause fire and destruction here against civilian targets. This was a civilian apartment building, an apartment complex here. You could see the entire vegetation is gone on both sides, on, on this side here. Uh, the buildings are destroyed. This is just one example of many other examples of the Russians using weapons against civilians that they shouldn't be doing.
1: So that's something that they would never typically use in an area where you can see homes, you can see parks.
16: Right. And we saw in apartment buildings and other places where there's other examples of the thermobaric weapons. There's a certain kind of system that they've brought to the battlefield. It's not even controlled by the Russian army. Strategically, it was brought in by the senior leaders of the Russian military in order to to create a weapon of terror for the civilians in that area.
1: Just all of this is what makes people wonder about the Ukrainian counteroffensive that we've been talking about, which was expected to happen, I believe, in the spring? Uh, There's now big questions about what exactly that's going to look like. I mean, obviously, now we're here through Mm mid-May. What's your
16: sense? So I I think there's a pause taking place, rightfully so, as the Ukraine military is training its troops overseas, places like Grafenvir, places like the United States, has to put its weapons in place. In order for the counteroffensive to be effective, the commander has the option of both where it takes place and when it takes place. So if you look at this very long border here between Mm -hmm. where Russian troops are and where the Ukrainian troops are, I think the the counteroffensive, when it finally... finally happens kind of cuts in this way. And threatens Crimea. Until the Ukraine military can threaten what Russia is doing in the south here, um, the Russian military is not going to stop. So I, I So believe you think
1: it's more towards the south than the east? I
16: do. And I think there's a little bit of a feint taking place right now in disinformation for what's going on. The the, the Battle of Bakhmut is a, is a classic example of Ukraine resilience and Russian military failure and is feeding into that narrative. But it also will show that if the, if the Russians put too much effort towards that, the Ukrainians will turn around and, and kind of cut their forces kind of in half here and really threaten Crimea.
1: And as you know, President Biden is in Japan right now. He's meeting with G7 leaders. Obviously, Ukraine is going to be one of the top topics they're talking about. The White House is coming under pressure once again for the F-16 fighter jets that are made by Lockheed Martin to provide them to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of whether or not they're going to give on that?
16: I don't think they're going to give. It's still a long time frame, 18 months in order to get them to the battlefield for them to be effective, to train pilots and also for the logistics supply chain. They need helicopters. They need ways to move troops around the battlefield quickly. I think besides the artillery, the air defense and the armor systems that have been given to them, you bring helicopters to that counteroffensive right now would allow shock effect. It'll allow troops to move around the battlefield, cross over the Dnipro River, cross those obstacles that we have there. I think that this... Uh, conversation gets tabled again.
1: So those are the arguments against sending them: the time it would take to train and to get them there, and you know how long it would take before they could actually use them. What's the argument for sending the F-16s?
16: Well, it sends a signal to the Russians that uh, the European community. We've seen the Brits and the, and the Dutch have already said that they're, they're willing to, and the Belgics have said that they would like to train the pilots and do things with them. So it's a more of a strategic weapon. The bottom line is this is leading more and more to Ukraine likely becoming a member of NATO at some point, three, four, five years down the line when. This this is all over.
1: All right. Major Mike Lyons, thank you for that update. It's good to see that and to see just that striking image once again of Black before and after and seeing what Russia has
0: done. Thank you. Thanks. It really is striking. Now this, scenes like this, what we're going to play for you, are happening at Little League Games across America. Parents lashing out from the stands, even getting violent. The impact it's having on umpires and youth sports. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Leagues across the country are facing major umpire shortages. Why? Our Vanessa Urkiewicz spoke to some umps, some parents, and players about what's behind all of this. Good morning. Is it bad behavior?
17: Good morning. (laughs) A little bit of that. I went to my first Little League game this week. The kids were so good, and they were so professional. But I was not there to keep an eye on them. I was there to keep an eye on some other people. (laughs) Take a look at how this played out. It's one of America's favorite pastimes. Yeah! Yeah! Baseball's just like it's very fun. But the kids' fun is being ruined by What
18: oh, is happening?
17: Adults. Around the country, brawls are breaking out at youth baseball games. A coach coming after an umpire at a little league game in Alabama.
19: He already heard you. I'm gonna forfeit the team.
17: Parents aggressively yelling at an umpire in Texas. I can't understand what could get someone so upset at a children's baseball game. I
20: don't. I'm with you. I don't understand it either. There's an expectation that you know every game is do or die for their kids' future in this sport.
17: The physical and verbal abuse by parents is having a dramatic impact, an umpire shortage. Since 2017, the number of youth umpires in the US has dropped. And at the high school level, there are nearly 20,000 fewer referees across all sports than before the pandemic. But with signs, those numbers may tick up this year.
20: We've suspended people from the park. And suspended parents from the park? Y- yes. For how long? Uh, usually it's usually it's one game, two games to begin with. And then if it becomes worse than that, then we ask them not to come back.
17: On this picture-perfect evening in Ramsey, New Jersey, the Robins are playing the Orioles. 21-year veteran umpire Carl Kearney is calling this Little League game. That one's low, ball four.
13: I'm the boss out there, no doubt. He's
17: a calm boss. All right, here we go. Which works in his favor. How have parents been in in recent years? Some
13: can be a little uh, louder than the coaches. Uh, Some vulgarity at times, but I let the parents say what they're going to say. If they continue... Then you have to then tell the coach, you know, you have to kind of manage your parents. Uh, If you don't calm that down, I'm going to have to ask you to remove
21: them.
17: Mike Wood has gotten into his fair share of arguments with umpires.
21: It has been suggested maybe I should leave a game. Suggested by who? But we never never got to that point.
22: Suggested by who?
23: Uh, By the umpire. The umpire said, look, I mean, if you don't like the way I'm calling the game, you can leave. I'm not going to leave, and it doesn't mean I have to enjoy the way that you're calling the game, you know?
17: But his son Jack, catcher for the Orioles, and Evan, catcher for the Robins, see it from a different perspective. The umpire is, like, the top-tier man, and, like, you have to respect him. Do you think it's appropriate for parents to be so involved yelling things at the umpire? They should be excited and, like, focused on the
1: game. But, like, when they, like, talk to umpires and, like, yell at the calls and stuff, I think that's a little unnecessary, maybe.
17: Unnecessary because why?
1: Because, like... It's like a kid's game and it's just like little League so kids are just trying to have fun
13: when adults behave badly the kids lose I have to stop the game and nobody wants that I can also understand that a parent you know wanting their, their child to you know to succeed but not at that price.
17: In the end, the Robins beat the Orioles for first place. But really, everyone's a winner. It was a clean game by the kids and the parents.
13: Good game. That was a great game. Great game. Great game. Great game.
17: And this verbal and physical abuse by parents and coaches against umpires is happening across all sports. It's in soccer, softball, basketball. And some of the parents were telling me that some of these youth sports are big financial investments from these parents. And for some reason, they feel more invested. And then that translates to this overexcitedness, aggression. And these umpires, they make about $45 to $65 a game. They're not making a lot of money to put up with this. So something really needs to change. These parents kind of need to get a get a hold of themselves a little bit and realize that you know, it's in the best interest of the kids. just cheer <laughs> yeah. them on and leave it just at that. Chill out. Chill out and cheer them on. Chill out. Did you ever
0: yell at umps in Alabama?
1: No, I don't have any kids, A. But B, a lot I of these umpires. I meant the like college. Oh, oh. Yeah, but like from the stands, no one can hear me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're far back. <laughs> That's Everyone's
17: yelling at that point. But when you have a parent right there yelling at the umpire. Yeah, ar- and a lot
1: of these umpires are like teenagers. <laughs> I mean, are. I went to my brother's baseball games all the time growing up. It's like kids, yeah. basically. High schoolers.
0: Hello, Uh, parents. Thank you. That was a great piece. Thank you. A lot of aggression.
1: Uh, Former President Trump says that when he was in office, he could declassify things automatically with his mind. New documents reveal that Trump and his team were aware that is not how it works. We have exclusive CNN reporting ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Miami Heat with a huge win against the Boston Celtics to start the conference finals last night. Andy Scholes joins us now. Andy, the Heat, they were behind by as many as like 13 points or something yeah. in the second quarter when I was last checking in before going to sleep. What
0: happened?
12: Uh, Jimmy Butler happened, (laughs) Caitlin. It's easy to forget the Miami Heat. Uh, They're the eighth seed. They had to win that final game in the play-in tournament just to make it into the playoffs. But when you have Jimmy Butler, playoff Jimmy, uh, anything is possible. And as you mentioned, Celtics had a lead in this one. They were up nine at halftime. But then Butler and Miami, an incredible third quarter. The Heat scoring 46 in the third. Most ever for them in a quarter in the playoffs. Second most ever given up by Boston. The Celtics, they got to back within four late in the fourth quarter in this one, but Butler coming through again. He hits a three right here to just put the game away. Heat win game one, 123-116. Butler had 35 points, and after the game, he talked about the privilege of being the leader of the Heat.
2: I really feel as though with anything in life, if you get the opportunity and you have the belief that my teammates, um, my coaches, um, you know, Coach Pat, Ownership having me to, you know, kind of lead the charge along with Bam right now. Anything is possible. And they're (laughs) trusting me with the ball on the defensive end. Um, And I think that's what any basketball player wants. That's what anybody wants out of life is just to be wanted, um, be appreciated, and just let you go out there and rock.
12: Great stuff there from Butler, guys. And he was also asked if he believed this kind of run was possible when they were in that playing tournament. He said, "Damn right, he did."
0: <laughs> we love, love Jimmy that. Butler. Love so good. I love what he said. applies to every everyone's life in one way or another. I know. I know. That's Amazing. Can't wait to see
1: what happens next in the no. in the series. Andy Shoals. We'll check back in with you. Thank you for everyone else. Scene in you know this morning continues right now.
24: National Archives has proof that Trump knew the proper process to declassify documents.
11: That completely undercuts what their claim has been.
25: They become automatically declassified when I took them. Hey, if you're going to declassify a record, this is how you do it. He did not do any
8: of those things chase in New York, speaking to all the fears that Harry has been so vocal about. The fact that I lost my mum when I was 12 years old could easily happen against my wife. Any type of high-speed chase is inappropriate. They look on
10: their faces, you could tell that they were nervous and scared.
17: The House voted on a resolution to refer George Santos to the Ethics Committee. If the Ethics Committee
12: finds a reason to remove me, that is the process. This isn't about politics.
3: George Santos does not
12: belong
25: in Congress.
2: Prosecutors revealing that the Air National Guardsman repeatedly was warned about his mishandling of these classified documents.
26: There was no reprimand. He kept accessing that information and disseminating it. Some people need to be
27: held accountable. The damage here is enormous. We're getting a never before
19: seen look at the Titanic wreckage deep in the Atlantic Ocean.
9: It could help unearth new details about how the Titanic sank in 1912. Experts are calling this treasure trove of new images a game changer.
1: Good morning, everyone. What a oh night. Glad last night. you're here. Yeah.
0: In what respect? Jimmy Butler. We're Jimmy just... Butler. Yeah, you Thank know, you I was that. watching that game very closely. <laughs> But we love him. She wasn't, but (laughs) she was busy
1: studying up for today. We have a lot of headlines to get to, including some new CNN exclusive reporting that says new evidence could undercut the claim made by former President Trump about automatically declassifying documents. The National Archives is set to hand over 16 presidential records to special counsel Jack Smith for his investigation into Trump's mishandling of classified documents. It says they show that Trump and his top advisors were aware of the proper declassification process that despite Trump claiming multiple times, he did de- declassify the papers simply by removing them from the White House.
2: If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. I have the right to declassify documents and the process is automatic. If I take them with me, it's automatic. By the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. But no, you why? Have to let me them. ask you.
1: They don't become automatically declassified. We've heard that from his own advisors. The 16 records, which we are now told was subpoenaed earlier this year, are going to be handed over next Wednesday to Jack Smith in his investigation. They could potentially help those investigators overcome a significant obstacle to a potential prosecution of the former president.
0: So let's get legal insight into all of that. Let's turn to CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Okay, big picture. How much does this
25: matter for prosecutors? matters a lot, Poppy. The key word here for prosecutors is intent. Right. How much did Donald Trump know? And did he know that his actions were wrong? Now, the new reporting is that the National Archives, that's the federal agency that's responsible for handling presidential records, During Donald Trump's presidency, sent him 16 different documents. Now, we don't know exactly what those documents say, but we do know that they related to whether, why and how you should declassify certain classified records. And so what prosecutors are going to argue is he knew. They told him this is how you do it if you want to declassify. If he didn't do that, Mm -hmm. then he did not declassified. Now, Trump has tried to argue before that these were automatically declassified. He did it by his mind. Or he argued at one point that he issued a standing order that any documents I take are automatically declassified. We know that's not true because there's no evidence of it. And there's contrary evidence. no one seems to remember who was on the inner circle. 18 former White House officials called that claim total nonsense, ridiculous, BS, a complete fiction, and laughable. So prosecutors are going to use this as key evidence of intent.
0: I was just gonna go ahead yes
25: also if we're looking at the potential charges here back when doj got permission to do the search warrant at mar-a-lago they listed three potential crimes one of them was obstruction of justice the other is destroying or concealing any government document but the third one this is the one that matters here mishandling defense information there's an argument that that only applies to classified documents so if trump did declassify this one's out but if he failed to declassify, this is still in play for prosecutors. What
0: I was going to ask is you've got to believe Trump's going to le- challenge us in the courts. Is that a tough bar to meet? To he say sur- you can't see these prosecutors,
25: he's very likely to challenge it in court. He's very unlikely to prevail. If he does, he'll argue executive privilege. He'll say these were communications from archives, an executive branch agency, over to me when I was president. So they're confidential. It's not that straightforward, though. We've known for almost 50 years now, dating back to a famous Supreme Court case involving Richard Nixon, that yes, executive privilege exists, but it's meant to protect legitimate strategy. But it's not all and yours policy. if there's
0: a possible crime.
25: Exactly. Courts have been very disinclined to use. Executive Executive privilege to block prosecutors from getting evidence. And Trump has tried this and people around him almost countless times. Everyone from Mike Pence, the former vice president, on down. He has lost all of these cases. His record is essentially zero wins on executive privilege. All losses. And I think if he challenges this, he'll have another one in the loss Can column. you
0: help us understand big picture here? Because we all remember when Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr said in an interview a month or two ago, essentially, the most potentially harmful case against the former president right now is the Mar-a-Lago Docs case.
25: Yeah, so four pending potential criminal matters. There's a lot swirling around Donald Trump now. Of course, he has been indicted by the Manhattan DA over the falsification, allegedly, of hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. We also have pending matters down in Georgia, the Fulton County DA, then the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which Bill Barr believes is the biggest threat. Hard to sort of weigh them all. And then finally, also an investigation into January 6th. And the way this is going to work within the Justice Department. We have Jack Smith. He is the special counsel. He's in charge of both of these cases. The Mar-a-Lago documents, which we were just talking about, Plus January 6th, he will have to recommend whether to indict or not. But ultimately, this guy, the the attorney general, he will make the decision, yes or no. Eli
0: Honig, thank
1: you. So helpful as always, Caitlin. And as we track those developments back here, President Biden right now is in Japan for a major summit with world leaders as the war is continuing to rage in Ukraine. But the debt limit crisis that is happening back in Washington is looming over his trip abroad. Just a few moments ago, he met with Japan's prime minister in Hiroshima ahead of the summit with the G7 world leaders. Those leaders vowing to stand united and support Ukraine against Russia. Even in Japan, though, President Biden could not escape questions from reporters about what's happening back in D.C.
2: The bottom line, Mr. Prime Minister, is that uh, when our countries stand together, we stand stronger. And I believe the whole world is safer when we do. So thank you again for having me here today. And we look forward to the next several days.
1: President Biden ignoring that question, not surprisingly. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, is live in Japan for CNN this morning. Phil, uh, obviously the president is meeting with these world leaders at a time where his domestic issues at home that he and Kevin McCarthy are battling out are affecting his diplomacy abroad. I understand he just got off the phone with the prime minister of Papua New Guinea, which is a trip he was supposed to be taking after being in Japan, but now no longer can because he's going back to D.C.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. That call following a call to the Australian prime minister delivering a similar message, apologizing for not being able to make the third leg of what was supposed to be a a three-stop trip. And and look, Caitlin, for the better part of two and a half years, I've heard some form of Biden advisors telling me that the president can walk and chew gum at the same time. Never has that cliche been so critical or so high stakes than at this moment right now. If you look at what the G7 meeting is really focused on here, it is the critical geopolitical issues of our time and what have been a central focus of President Biden's foreign policy throughout his time in office. Certainly the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, and the ability of the G7 to stay together, the durability of a relationship that has been so critical to the support of Ukraine over the course of the year plus that they have uh, been trying to beat back Russia's invasion. At the same time, the president trying to draw closer the alliance as it relates uh, to China's rise and its influence. And there's really a through line here in Japan where the The president has a very close relationship with Prime Minister Kushida, where Japan has taken major steps over the course of the last several months in terms of building up its defense capacity and capability with U.S. support, with President Biden behind them every step of the way, as they recognize and their officials make clear what they've seen happen in Ukraine very much feels like something that could be a through line into their region as it comes to China and Taiwan. And yet leaders are very cognizant of what's happening domestically. Keep in mind, the G7 is just under 50 percent of the world's global economy, a global economy that would be shattered by a U.S. debt default. They're paying very close attention to what's happening right now. And the president he can deliver on two primary focuses while he's here. Bailey.
1: Yeah. And not something he's likely to get resolved until he's back in Washington. Phil Mattingly, keep us updated. Thank you.
0: So also this morning, new and conflicting details about what happened to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle right here on the streets of New York City. The couple's spokesperson described the incident as, quote, a near catastrophic car chase at the hands of a ring of highly aggressive paparazzi. This relentless pursuit lasting over two hours resulted in multiple near collisions involving other drivers on the road, pedestrians and two NYPD officers. Close quote. That's what their team is saying. Now, the Sussexes had to switch cars multiple times during this hours-long chase. There's a taxi driver who actually intervened at one point, and they spoke to CNN last night. Listen.
5: Did you yeah. feel
22: that you were in danger?
10: No, I didn't feel like I was in danger. But, you know, uh, Harry and Megan, they look very nervous.
22: Sonny, had you ever seen anything else like this
10: in your years as, of driving a taxi? No, no. I've been driving now since 2018. This was the first time I saw this.
0: So we know the Sussexes were pursued by photographers after leaving an event at the city's Ziegfeld Ballroom. That's right in Midtown. But the NYPD says although there were numerous photographers who made the transportation challenging, the NYPD is saying there were no collisions, injuries or arrests. So let's try to understand this better with our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, and CNN contributor and British broadcaster, Trisha Goddard. Great to see you guys. Good morning. I wish we were under better circumstances because all we think about is how Diana died, how Princess yes. Diana died. What do you make, John, of what the NYPD is saying and not saying?
28: Well, what they're saying is we weren't playing in this chase, meaning... Uh, This was not uh, lights and sirens going through red lights, taking off at high speed. This was a slow motion chase. Uh, The difficulty is, and I've spoken to people on the private security team um, and gotten the NYPD account, is there were times when they could get some distance between them and this pack. And the, the, the near catastrophic danger, if there was one, is when the photographers, motorcycles, scooters went down sidewalks, when one of their cars mounted the sidewalk to go across a corner um, with pedestrians there to run a red light to catch up when they drove into oncoming traffic on 34th street to catch up. Um, That is the hazard was on that side Um, in the regard of uh, comparing it to what happened with Diana. That was a high speed chase where the car carrying her was also moving at high speed at different times and through that tunnel. Um, This was much more regulated on, her, on, on their side.
0: Yeah,
1: but Trisha, as you know, I mean, it's New York City. It's the streets mm-hmm. of New York City. It's any, as Eric Adams said yesterday, even a 10-minute kind of chase like that could be really damaging, not just to them, but yeah. to anyone who lives here. When this statement first came out, though, from them calling it this near-catastrophic incident, I was reminded of this moment when Harry did his interview with Anderson Cooper. He said he's always worried about what happened to his mother yeah. could happen to them.
8: The thing that's terrified me the most is history repeating itself. You really feared that your wife, Megan... Yes, I feared, I feared a lot that the end result, the fact that I lost my mum when I was 12 years old, could easily happen again to my wife.
14: And uh, when you think back uh, on um, ABC, he also said, you know, his mum was with a non-white person and this felt like it all over again. So it's going to be really triggering for, for him. I mean, there's no escaping that at all. You know, one of the really interesting things when we covered the coronation right after that on my show that I was doing... People were calling in and I thought everyone would be, you know, into the buzz of the new king. So many people said, not my king because of what happened to Diana. So this is really fresh in the, you know, in the in the public psyche, this whole thing about Diana. So it's interesting how it's playing out in the UK. When this story first came out, of course, I went through all of the newspapers to see who was reporting it and see who wasn't reporting it. Mm-hmm. And, and as you know, uh, Prince Harry's got six law cases going on at the moment, some to do with his personal security, some to do with the media. There was one newspaper who usually is all over things like a rash no mention until way way down saying hey we did have some news uh, some photographs which we did initially uh, publish on our website we've now taken off now i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i'm thinking mm, smell of rat here you know so there's so much going on there is this battle between the tabloids and prince harry and this feeds into both his security concerns and the concerns that the uh, certain parts of the tabloid newspaper industry in the UK has taken a step too far.
0: Is this normal for celebrities in New York? I don't, I mean, one thing that I like about New York is that, you know, you become anonymous, (laughs) celebrities can walk around Soho and the West Village and kind of get left alone.
28: Not normal. No, right? Um, You know, New Yorkers are tripping over famous people (laughs) all day and all night. And, you know, sometimes it's noticed and sometimes, you know, it's just a wink or a nod. Uh, But uh, the royals uh, or ex-royals are different. um, And they come with not a New York press car, a press court. They come with um, Mm -hmm. the photo agencies that know the prices they can get for a photo that's different or unique um, or another, you know, another advance that uh, that recruit these freelancers. Mm -hmm. And they know if I don't get the shot, I don't get the money. They get very aggressive.
14: Yeah.
0: Trish John Miller, thanks very, very much. Glad they're OK in all of this.
10: Yeah.
1: Also, this morning, we're tracking a new development on the border. An eight-year-old girl has died while she was in custody of Border Patrol in Texas. U.S. Customs and Border Protection confirms that the child had some sort of, quote, medical emergency while she was at a migrant facility with her family. We're told that she was pronounced dead at a local hospital. Detention facilities along the southern border have been dealing with overcrowding after a surge of migrants leading up to the title Uh, expiration of Title 42 last week, the agency says that federal investigators from the Justice Department are now looking into the girl's death to figure out what happened here.
0: And we'll keep you updated as we learn more. very sad. This is the third death uh, in these facilities under the Biden administration. There were six under the Trump administration. Any child dying in these circumstances is terrible. Um, An out of control plane crashing in the middle of the road in Florida burst into flames. You see the smoke there, that video. And what happened ahead? Also, for teenagers teenagers
1: out there, a first to the nation is Montana has officially banned TikTok on personal devices, a ban that is almost certainly going to face legal challenges. What could that look like, though, if it does stand those legal challenges? And will other states follow? We'll talk about it next. Montana has just become the first state in the U.S. to ban TikTok not on government devices, but personal ones. The governor there, Greg Gianforte, says that he signed the bill into law on Wednesday to protect citizens from foreign influence since TikTok is owned by China-based ByteDance. We should note there's no direct evidence that the Chinese government has ever actually accessed TikTok user data, but it's certainly a concern among lawmakers, not just in Washington, but across the U.S. Senator Omar Jimenez joins us now. I assume TikTok was kind of bracing for something like this. We've seen these bans on government devices happen now it's on personal.
27: Yeah, I mean, look, TikTok uh, on on their end is is likely not surprised that this is happening. I mean, we've seen Shochu, their CEO, testify on Capitol Hill. Um, but in this particular instance in Montana, Greg Gianforte making this move to ban TikTok. And under this law, which, which goes into effect in January, the app is literally prohibited from operating within state lines. So this is the strictest measure that we've seen. And as you laid out, the, the perceived fear is that TikTok is owned by Chinese company ByteDance and that U.S. officials fear that in some scenario, the Chinese government could harvest U.S. data through TikTok to spy on American citizens. Now, uh, Governor Greg Gianforte has been tweeting about this, and he said specifically that TikTok is just one app tied to foreign adversaries. And today I directed the state's chief information officer to ban any application that provides personal information or data to foreign adversaries from the state network to protect Montana's personal and private data from the Chinese Communist Party. I've banned TikTok in Montana.
0: TikTok's going to say in response, given all their past statements, um, you have no evidence of us turning things over to to the Chinese government. Yeah. They're going to say.
27: Exactly. And in short, the CEO has said that all of this hype is based on hypothetical scenarios uh, based on his head that this hasn't happened yet uh, and that he has said that if Beijing asked for uh, U.S. data, that they would turn it down there, as TikTok. There was
0: that one example that BuzzFeed reported on over yeah. the summer of of, China, of some Chinese in a bigger company, yeah. the employees getting journalist information. So there is that to
27: point to. Exactly. And there, and there are definitely things that have come out here and there. But as you can imagine, the TikTok CEO put out a statement in response to this saying, uh, and I'll just summarize it, that Uh, The governor signed a bill uh, that infringes on the rights of people in Montana and that people use TikTok to express themselves, earn a living and find community as we continue working to defend the rights of our users inside and outside of Montana. So, look, as you mentioned, there are situations where there are concerns and security experts have even said that, in theory, this is something that is possible. The TikTok CEO is saying, well, it hasn't been proven outright yet. And so... uh, you know, why you're gonna go on something that is in their minds a hypothetical. Yeah. So you
1: can hear the legal challenges from here.
27: Yeah, January's a long my way away. We'll
1: see.
0: Thank you. Really yeah. interesting. So yes. embattled Congressman George Santos avoiding an expulsion vote for now, but his trouble's far from over, as some of his democratic colleagues have urged him to resign very vocally
4: what do you have to say to those save yourself like have I said dignity. if if I could if I could stand you dignity.
12: over my colleagues screaming here the reality New is,
2: is better. Congress, we better You gotta go man come on more
0: CNN this morning to come after the break. So happening this afternoon. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet with top bank CEOs after she warned the U.S. could run out of cash and default on its debt just 13 days from today. And people familiar with this say the meeting will very likely focus. It's obviously going to focus on the debt ceiling. And the White House and Congress continue to try to strike some sort of deal to prevent catastrophe. Secretary Yellen has warned if the U.S. defaults, it would be catastrophic for the U.S. economy and really global financial markets. Our chief business correspondent Christine Romans is here with more. What do we know about this meeting?
22: Well, we know that it will be Citigroup, Chase, and Bank of America, and we know they will talk about the debt. Sl- of course, I mean she's been working the phones all week, talking to bankers and business leaders and CEOs, talking about what could be happening here, and really encouraging um, the, everyone to be aware that this is this is coming up. And they'll probably also talk about regional banks as mm. well. And regional banks doing a little bit better yesterday. There was a regional bank that said that it actually had seen some deposit inflows, so you have some stability there in that banking sector. But Poppy, what really freaks me out. Mm. For the technical term, is that the cash in the bank in the United States Treasury, Treasury's coffers fell below hundred billion dollars. So think about wow. that. Yeah. we're running out of money. There's not. <laughs> we're running out of money, and after January fir- June first, you're going to start to get payments of like twenty five billion Look for at that this decline in four days. Yes, twenty five billion for this, thirty billion for that, twenty billion for that. So. Uh, we are running out of time.
0: And they're going to talk about, I don't know, this meeting, but there's more and more talk about eliminating the debt ceiling because of things like this.
22: That's right. And you think about the debt ceiling. It now is just drama. It's not fiscal discipline. It's just drama. The drivers of our debt are health care costs, Social Security, Medicare, uh, interest on the debt, not enough taxes. Those are hard, serious, bipartisan conversations, hard work that has to be done. Arguing over the debt ceiling is not that hard work. It's Political theater that is very dangerous, very dangerous. I have a piece that I wrote yesterday about all the people who just want to get rid of the damn thing. You know, for the love of God, get rid of the debt ceiling. It's not as easy as all that,
1: but that's how people really feel about it now.
0: Christy Rowan, thank you very much. And of
1: course, this is something that is affecting President Biden's trip abroad. He is in Japan right now for a major summit with allies. Of course, one of the big topics there will not just be uh, what's happening domestically, but also the war that is raging in Ukraine. The debt limit crisis back home looming over this trip. Joining us now is the White House's National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, who is in Japan traveling with him and with President Biden. Uh, John, I just want to ask you the question that President Biden was asked earlier while he was meeting with the Japanese prime minister that he did not answer, which is, can he guarantee U.S. allies that the U.S. is not going to default on its debt this week?
10: What we can guarantee is that uh, we're going to uh, treat uh, these discussions with members of Congress as seriously as we possibly can. And the president said uh, he is optimistic that we're going to get there. Look, Congress, uh, this uh, is something that uh, is a congressional duty. Uh, They've done it 78 uh, previous times. Uh, There's no reason why they can't do it again this time. They've done it under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, It needs to be done and it 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 will be done. The president uh, has said that. Well, Kirby, the president has
1: also and the White House have also said you know, that he can do his job wherever he is. Obviously, the president has his capabilities when he goes overseas. Is it a sign of how the negotiations are going that he had to cut this trip abroad short?
10: The president felt like uh, given the, the looming deadline and given where uh, the teams were, uh, in the last couple of days uh, that the best use of his time was to be back in Washington to make sure that Congress does, uh, g- does its duty. And again, he's willing to sit down uh, as the teams are right now to talk about budgets and appropriations issues with, uh, uh, with Speaker McCarthy and his team. Uh, and he wants to make sure, the president wants to make sure uh, that he's present, uh, you know, as those, as those negotiations and those, and those discussions wrap up.
0: I want to talk to you, and John, thanks so much for joining us from this trip. But uh, front page news in The New York Times today, I'm sure you've seen it, Ukraine's allies spar over a push to send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. We're seeing more and more of our European allies, Britain, the Netherlands, want to send F-16s to Ukraine, but they need the approval of the United States to do so. Where is the Biden administration on this?
10: I don't have any announcements to make on the F-16s, Poppy, or any uh, uh, or any changes to uh, to our approach right now. to, To speak to what I will tell you is that we have worked very hard throughout the beginning from the beginning of this war. Uh, to give Ukraine the capabilities that it needs to be successful on the battlefield. And we focus a lot on uh, the capabilities they need right in front of them. But that said, we have also not been afraid to look out ahead about future capabilities. And so as the war has evolved and as Ukraine's needs have evolved, so too has the support that we provided Ukraine. But again, on F-16s particularly, I, I just don't have anything to speak to right now. But, you are, but you're saying, because what we have
0: seen, as you said, evolve, is that what the U.S. has said it wasn't going to provide, it has provided Do you see F-16s in that same category potentially?
10: Uh, Again, we're going to keep up the the discussions with Ukraine about their needs, both their immediate needs and their long-term needs. Um, And I guess I just don't want to get ahead Mm -hmm. of of those discussions or or, or where we are. We have evolved uh, as the situation has evolved. We want to make sure that Ukraine, when this war is over, is able to uh, continue to be able to defend itself because it's still going to have a a border with with Russia. It's still going to have legitimate uh, security concerns.
1: Are you expecting the F-16s to be brought up during this G7 summit, John?
10: Uh, it's not on the agenda. F-16 specific, particularly is not on the agenda on the G7, uh, Caitlin. But as you rightly said, when we started this discussion, Ukraine is absolutely going to be on the agenda here at the G7. And I think you're going to hear the G7 leaders all again speak uh, with one voice about the importance of continuing to support Ukraine and continuing to hold Mr. Putin accountable. They're going to have a lengthy set of discussions about uh, the sanctions regime and sanctions enforcement in particular to make sure that, uh, that we can try to limit Mr. Putin's war making. Machine, but as for specific capabilities like the uh, F-16, that's not a specific agenda item. Now, could it come up on the margins? I mean, who knows? Uh, We just we just landed here. The discussions haven't actually started.
1: And obviously, John, a part of the trip being cut short raised questions about the U.S. efforts to counter China and its influence in the regions of where the trip is not happening anymore—Papua New Guinea and Australia. Those stops. When you see the Chinese envoy in Ukraine, as they are right now, meeting with top Ukrainian officials. We also heard President Biden say he plans to speak with Chinese President Xi Jinping soon. When is that conversation going to happen?
10: Nothing on the schedule right now, Caitlin, but the, the, the president absolutely wants to have. He wants to connect again. Uh, With President Xi, he said that many, many times. It's uh, very consistent from him. Um, And they will. They absolutely will. They'll do that at the appropriate time. But right now, uh, there's nothing on the schedule. I do want to hasten to add, though, that the lines of communication with China remain open. We're still, still working uh, through our embassy in Beijing to see if we can get Secretary Blinken uh, back on a plane over there, Beijing, as he was uh, supposed to do a a couple of months ago. We're also in talks uh, with the PRC about potential visits by Secretaries Yellen and Ramondo to go talk about economic issues. So those. Those lines of communication are open, uh, and that's really important. What we what we would like to do uh, is get those military and military lines of communication open because they were right. shut down uh, after Speaker then Speaker Pelosi's uh, visit to Taiwan.
0: Yeah, I, I was just going to say in Caitlin's interview with Lloyd Austin on that topic a few months ago, yeah. that was key. What were you going to say?
1: Just one question on Ukraine before we have another topic for you, John. I know that you are representing the White House right now. You have to be careful about political comments that you can make. But what was your reaction when you heard the former president and Republican front runner last week saying that he couldn't say if he wanted Ukraine to win this war?
10: Well, well you're, you're right, Caitlin. I, uh, I am uh, not at liberty to, to get into talking about politics uh, here from the National Security Council, and I certainly won't get into talk about, uh, you know, comments made on, on campaign trails and, um, and in an election season. All I can tell you is that President Biden uh, has been very clear that we want Ukraine to succeed. Uh, we want to see them win. We want to see Ukraine whole and free and prosperous and fully independent. And that's what we're focused on. In fact, as I said earlier, that's going to be a key topic of discussion here uh, in Japan with the G7 leaders to make sure that we're all still pulling on the same set of oars. Mm-hmm. We're getting Ukraine what they need. We're getting it to them as fast as they as they need it and can use it. Because we know that these weeks and months ahead, they're going to be critical. The weather's getting better. We can expect that the Russians are going to want to go on the offense. It's likely that the Ukrainians are also going to want to take to take to the field and go on the offense. We've got to make sure that they're ready for all of that, that they have all the capabilities, training and tools that they need to be successful. That's what we're focused on.
0: Before you go, switching topics in a major way, but we do want to know the White House position on what Montana just did overnight imposing the first in the nation statewide ban on TikTok, not just on government devices, on every device. And their law comes with a potential $10,000 penalty for anyone that violates it. Obviously, it's going to face challenges in the court. But I wonder if the White House supports what Republican Governor Greg Gianforte just signed into law there.
10: I think we're still taking a look at that and reviewing it. So it would be uh, premature, I think, for me to offer a, an opinion here uh, just, just after it uh, just after it passed. And, and you're right, there, there may be some uh, legal challenges there. What I can tell you, though, from our perspective is that the president has spoken to this, uh, that we have re- very real national security concerns hmm. about that particular application, TikTok. That's why it's banned on government devices. Um, and, you know, there is an ongoing review process right now that I can't get ahead of either uh, to talk about uh, the specific review. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to look at not only Tic Tac but other similar applications. Okay. Very All right,
1: John Kirby, Thank thanks you. for joining us. Last minute from Japan. We appreciate your time.
10: My pleasure. Good to be with you guys.
0: All right, New York lawmakers Jamal Bowman and Alexander Ocasio Cortez heckled and battled Republican Congressman George Santos in the steps of the Capitol. We'll show you the screaming match that followed. Drama on the steps of the U.S. Capitol after the House voted to refer a resolution to expel Congressman George Santos to the Ethics Committee. This now allows House Republicans to avoid, for now, at least weighing in on the matter directly. But some New York Democrats in Congress made sure that they were heard as Santos addressed reporters outside on the House steps
12: save yourself like i said if if i could if i could understand you over my colleagues screaming here the reality is
2: is,
13: you gotta go man come on how's your ethics
12: how's your
2: ethics play
13: going
0: aren't you (laughs) that. Was- <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. You
1: can't ignore that shouting in the background. I know. That was New York Congressman Jamal Bowman heckling Santos as he was taking questions from reporters. The chaotic scene continued, though, long after that as Marjorie Taylor Greene stepped in to defend her embattled Republican colleague.
4: He he's embarrassing, Biden. y'all. Biden is a Impeach for what? you oh, got to get him up. Oh, him. You've got to expel. Save the party. No, the have. party's hanging by no, a we thread. Got, we got to get rid of Biden The party is the party The is hanging by a thread. You've got to save Biden. the party. Impeach Listen, Biden. no impeach more QAnon.
1: <laughs> Whew. Joining us now, CNN political analyst and New York Times national politics reporter, Ested Herndon, and writer for Very Serious Josh Barrow, I mean, I felt like it was like watching like a scene outside of a high school or something yesterday.
4: <laughs> I mean, this is what this has turned into, just the ultimate Capitol Hill sideshow. That's partly because it has no kind of end in sight. George Santos is someone who has no incentive to leave Congress is making him more famous by the day. And he he's has said again. that he's running again. He said that that has been a thrill. Is to become this kind of icon for this stuff, and he's also dealing with the Republican Party. has no incentive to really do much with him. They need him in their small the negotiating vote. window, and particularly as this debt ceiling negotiations are coming up. So it's kind of a rock. In hard place that's made the conditions for this kind of shouting match to become a day-by-day thing on the Hill. And I think it risks turning into even a bigger sideshow than it is already.
26: Yeah. The, Santos also represents a district that Joe Biden won by eight points. So it's actually conceivable that if they had to have a special election, the right. Democrats would pick up the seat. The Republican majority would get even narrower. But I think also, like, if you're, imagine that you're George Santos for just a second. The congressional seat is the only thing he has in the whole world. Like, if he resigns from Congress, what is there left for George Santos to do? And so, you know, the, the, the idea that they're going to shame him into resigning, like, you know, the, the one thing that he has to wake up for in the morning is that despite all of this, he is a member of the United States Congress. So I think there's no way he's going to go willingly. Mm-hmm.
0: To a much more serious uh, topic <laughs> that could be catastrophic for the U.S. economy, the debt ceiling. Yep. The president did not answer the question shouted at him by reporters in uh, Japan this morning. Can you guarantee the U.S. won't default? John Kirby didn't answer Caitlin's direct question. Can you guarantee, can the White House guarantee the U.S. won't default? What, and, and the president's going back to deal with this and cutting off two legs of his trip.
26: It's so strange. I mean, they've done this 103 times since the establishment of the debt limit. And there, there have been a number of crises prior that sort of have this rhythm. And you can even, you can go read the clips from 1985 with Ronald Reagan, very similar, right up to the line, concerns about what happens if we don't make the payments. And so I think that's part of why people are so blasé about this, that not only have we done this before, we've done the thing before where it's like, oh, this time is going to be different. Yeah. And then this time isn't different. None of these people seem to me like they're quite behaving like they really think the United States might miss a payment on its bonds in a, in a because we never have. Well, because we never have. But then also, I mean, there are these gimmicks available. I mean, there, you yeah. know, the, there's this, you can claim that the 14th Amendment permits the, 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 the administration to issue debt in, in violation of the debt limit. But then there's also this stuff with, I, I know it sounds silly, but the you can make a large denomination platinum coin and deposit it in the Treasury. Uh, you can issue bonds that have, a, that, that have sort of a, a funky structure that allow you to, to basically create accounting gimmicks. Under the debt limit, which we've already been doing, by the way, we hit the debt limit months ago. They do what they call extraordinary Starting measures like where they go, they take money out of a retirement fund for federal employees and use that to finance the government. Then they put the money back in the retirement fund uh, after after we're done with the, the debt limit crisis. And so there are downsides to pursuing all of those possible workarounds. But I don't think any of them has a, have a downside as large as not paying the, the interest on the debt. And so I think that you know, the, the, the extent to which this administration doesn't seem incredibly alarmed by the situation where they're, they're supposed to negotiate this big overall deal in two weeks with lots of complicated parts, like they want to do permitting reform along with a budget deal and a debt limit deal, and they have to decide rules about how you're going to build interstate power lines. Like, the idea that we're going to do all of that negotiation in two weeks just strikes me as crazy. Maybe we'll have a deal to make a deal. This has happened in some prior crises where you have a short-term increase. It gives them time to negotiate, and then you have a longer-term deal in a few months.
19: On
1: that front, these negotiations do have to happen, and they're happening mainly, they've got emissaries, but it's Biden and McCarthy Mm -hmm. that have to come to an agreement It seems like Democrats, especially in the Senate, are getting concerned about what that agreement could look like, what they may have to vote for.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a kind of reality setting in that the position that the White House was holding, that they were going to get that clean increase, is gone. That was not a real position that you could have with this Republican Party the second McCarthy was able to get that bill through. And so that reality is setting in for, I think, members of the Senate that they might— have to back a deal that ends up putting more work requirements on things like food stamps. That hasn't really hit well with a lot uh, of senators, with a lot of folks on the kind of progressive side. But you're still seeing congressional leadership move forward with that. I think to Josh's point, there's some other kind of escape hatches. You've had Democrats try to use this special discharge position in the House to have a kind of backup plan for what the White House uh, might be able to negotiate. But McCarthy will also have some pressure too. remember when he was able to get the speaker Gavel, he made those, some concessions to the to, to those uh, of, to those Congress folks to say there was going to be a 72-hour window, for example, before bills reached to the floor. That might not be able to happen with this. It's going to be interesting to see if he 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 is able to hold his caucus together as well. The politics of brinkmanship has been the politics of chicken, also politically between these two camps. And both Biden and McCarthy will have pressures coming uh, uh, from both the progressive side and the kind of grassroots Trump side that they're going to have to hold together to. Get this time.
0: And we never had to be here in the first place. This yeah. Totally self-inflicted. <laughs> Tightrope is an understatement. <laughs> um, thank you both for being here. We'll see yeah. what happens. Of course, this is something that is looming over Biden's whole trip. It absolutely is. Just hours from now, the FDA could decide to recommend the first ever RSV vaccine. It is aimed at protecting infants. Also this, the suspect accused of leaking military secrets
1: was apparently repeatedly warned about his mishandling of classified documents. He was never removed from his post, though. We have more on the investigation ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
0: Just hours from now, FDA advisors will decide if they will recommend the first ever RSV vaccine aimed at protecting infants. Parents have been eagerly waiting for this moment, given RSV infects every single, nearly every single young child, according to the CDC. And this virus causes cold like symptoms in most people, but it can be severe, even deadly for some. So if the panel votes in favor of approving the vaccine today, FDA officials will still have a final say. And that process could take months. Our Meg Terrell has the story.
14: When I went to pick him up, he was cold.
24: There'd been no major signs that six-week-old Caleb Strickland was dangerously sick before his mom, Christina, put him down for a nap one day last September. Just sniffles and less of an appetite.
18: And so I picked him up. He was lethargic. He would open his eyes, he would close his eyes, open his eyes,
24: close his eyes. After a call to his pediatrician, they rushed him to the hospital. Before I even knew what happened,
18: he, he was being admitted and
24: pumped with oxygen and
18: trying to be stabilized.
24: Eventually, Christina says Caleb tested positive for RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. That was the first time we had ever heard, heard of RSV. The CDC says almost all kids will get infected with RSV by the time they're two years old. For most, it's like a mild cold. But for others, particularly young infants and those born prematurely, or kids with weakened immune systems or other health conditions, it can be severe. The CDC says RSV puts as many as 80,000 kids younger than five in the hospital each year in the U.S. We can see RSV really affect anything in the, any system in the body but what seems to get
15: children into trouble and in the, ice, in the hospital uh, with RSV is when it affects their, their breathing or their respiratory status.
24: There's no vaccine against RSV for babies and kids. And the first for older adults, produced by company GSK, was just approved earlier this month. One of Pfizer's RSV vaccines that's being considered for approval would be a single shot given during pregnancy late in the second or third trimester and could help protect babies like Caleb through the first six months of life. That is called passive
15: immunity. Mother passed it to baby and baby now has some protection.
24: Christina Strickland says it's something she wishes had been available to her to protect both Caleb and his twin brother, Andrew. If there was any vaccination I could have taken,
18: I would have definitely taken it to protect them. How are Andrew and Caleb doing now? They're wonderful. They're fat and juicy and moving around, um, very healthy.
24: And so these advisors today are going to be voting on both the efficacy and the safety of this vaccine. It was proven to be 70 to 80 percent effective Mm -hmm. in preventing severe RSV in babies in the clinical trials. In terms of safety, the advisors are going to be looking at whether there is any signal for preterm births. It's not clear that there is, but they're going to be talking about that. My
0: nephews are twins, so I love that story. Oh. The best soundbite of the morning big and juicy. Bad about and juicy. Her little, I can attest they were both fat and juicy and adorable. Fat and cutest. <laughs> Thank you for that. Really it's important nice. for parents to see. And Cena This Morning continues right now. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. We have a lot of news to get to this hour. We're so glad you're with us on this Thursday. Let's begin here. The suspect accused of leaking military secrets was repeatedly warned about his mishandling of classified documents, but was never removed from his post. That's according to new court records.
1: Also, as we are tracking this hour, President Biden is live on the ground in Japan, ahead of the G7 summit. He is abroad, but he cannot escape the troubles of Washington and the pressure that is mounting to reach a deal on the debt ceiling back home.
0: Coming up, we're going to speak to Congressman Katie Porter about that looming deadline. Also this, Guy Ferrari sitting down with our very own Sarah Seidner giving us a look at his nearly 20-year career with the Food Network. He tells us exactly how he picks the restaurants he features on Triple D. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. But we do begin with news on Ukraine. Explosions heard in Kyiv and other Ukrainian regions as authorities reported a countrywide air attack. This is fierce fighting continues around the embattled eastern city of Bakhmut, with Ukraine gaining some ground in recent days. We do have new video to show you from those recent days showing Bakhmut getting absolutely pummeled in shelling. CNN has obtained new satellite imagery, just showing the devastating toll the war has taken on this city in particular over the past year. This is Ukraine prepares for its long awaited counteroffensive to try to reclaim occupied land. Sam Kiley joins us this morning from eastern Ukraine. Sam, good morning. Hey, Poppy. What can you tell us?
23: Six. Eight, six. Oh, i uh, uh, Sorry, there's a rather uh, heavy wind conditions here, so difficult to pick you up properly there, Poppy. But the uh, I think the main thing to take away from this latest wave of attacks by uh, cruise missiles, surface-to-surface missiles, the full panoply of sophisticated missile technology fired by the Russians is once again they're trying to soak up the air defences of the Ukrainians and expose vulnerabilities such as they could find in Kiev. There were 30 missiles fired, 29 the Ukrainians, Ukrainians claim we have no independent verification for this but the Ukrainians claim to have shot down 29 out of 30 either a missile or debris of a missile hit the southern port city of Odessa killing one person uh, three people were killed the previous day uh, in uh, missile strikes and uh, artillery attacks in Kherson Uh, around the country. So this is a sort of situation normal in the sense that the uh, Russians are doing this regularly in order to possibly absorb or get the Ukrainians to spend as much of their air defences as they can ahead of the planned summer offensive that the Ukrainians are expected to launch when the Russians will want to get their aircraft into the air uh, more freely to use against the ground forces that the Ukrainians no doubt will unleash. But the ground battle continues in Bakhmut with a peculiar. A situation in which the Ukrainians are saying they're advancing on the northern and southern flanks around the city, but within the city, the Wagner mercenary group claims to have concentrated the Ukrainians down to a very small area where they say they are fighting bit, bitter battles against uh, diehard Ukrainian very fighters uh, holding out to the bitter end, it would seem, Puppy.
0: These images, these aerial images of Bahamut are just striking. Sam Kylie, we really appreciate your reporting from southeastern Ukraine.
1: We're also now learning this morning that the young airman who is accused of leaking top-secret documents was reported multiple times to his commanders, and he was warned repeatedly to stop mishandling classified intelligence. But despite those warnings, he was allowed to keep his job. That is the new and alarming revelation that federal prosecutors made yesterday, according to military memos that date back to September of last year of 2022, Members of Jack Teixeira's unit at his Air National Guard base alerted commanders after they saw him writing notes about classified intelligence, stuffing those notes into his pocket. He was also reported for doing, quote, deep dives and searching the base's computer system for intelligence that wasn't related to his job. And all of this came months before he was arrested for allegedly leaking a trove of embarrassing and damaging and revealing documents from the Pentagon to video gamer friends online. Here with Moore is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, you know, learning this from federal prosecutors, as they're saying, there are these three incidences where, incidents where he was writing notes on classified intelligence, which is, you know, you're not supposed to do, putting in his pocket. Then he was looking at a trove of information, deep diving, they said. Um, and then he was looking at intelligence that was not related to his primary duty. Why were those incidents not enough to remove him from his role?
28: They were enough what didn't happen so what we're seeing now is that base this is extraordinarily unusual that base has been suspended from its intelligence mission totally the commanding officer has been um, suspended from command of it as well as the executive officer so in the pentagon's review clearly they have recognized problems there and and basically shut that operation down um, in terms of the classified intelligence side but the question is, he's making notes of classified documents. We know from earlier court filings that um, he he was nervous about this because he'd been caught. So he just started taking the documents wholesale. The real answer is, had these three things been treated seriously at the time, this would have been a referral to the base's security officer who's supposed to ensure the security of those documents. And then logically, it should have gone to an organization like OSI, the Office of Special Investigations, which is the Air Air Force's Criminal um, Investigation Bureau to see, you know, one thing is one thing, two things, three things. He went to a classified briefing and sat in the audience and asked extraordinarily detailed questions about things that nothing had that had to do with his realm and remember what his realm was. He was the IT guy. Mm -hmm. His job was to make sure the systems were working. He wasn't an analyst. He wasn't a targeter. he wasn't a drone pilot. So all of this should have been setting off alarm bells sooner.
0: But should it also change, uh, writ large, how how you know the Pentagon allows people in what positions to to have access to classified documents?
28: So that's something the Pentagon is looking at now, which is um, the person in that job, who's basically the IT person that makes the systems run, actually needs to have that needs to have that clearance because you can't access them. You can't access the mechanics of the system where all that information is contained and not have been through that background investigation. That also doesn't mean, as you point out, that you need to be looking at it and reading it because it has nothing to do with your job to make sure the system functions. So this is a holistic review about where do you put up these fences. But to to get back to Caitlin's question. The real the real thing is we don't need to change all the rules. We need we need to go by the rules that were already in place. When alarm bells go off, that has to go up the chain further.
1: And it did. And yet he stayed in his job. Uh, John Miller, as you learn more, keep us updated. Just remarkable developments, though.
0: Yeah, thanks. So this morning, three FBI whistleblowers will testify for the first time in a public hearing on alleged abuses of power by FBI leadership. It is the latest escalation of the House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan's high-profile investigation into allegations that the FBI is weaponized against conservatives. Two of the individuals speaking today have already sat for closed-door interviews with the subcommittee and Democrats have been raising questions about the credibility of their testimony. Sarah Murray is following all of this and has more. Good morning, Sarah.
18: Good morning, Poppy. Well, we learned in a letter from the FBI last night, they rolled out uh, examples of three employees of the FBI whose security clearances had been revoked, either because they attended the Capitol riot on January 6th or they espoused essentially alternate theories about it. We're learning that two of those employees that the FBI lays out in this letter are going to be witnesses in this hearing today. So that, I think, gives you an idea of where these folks are coming from that Jim Jordan is putting forward. I mean, one of these men is someone who emailed his colleagues at the FBI telling them to exercise extreme caution and discretion in pursuit of any investigative inquiries or leads pertaining to the events of January 6th. He had also been asked to investigate a possible subject who had been there on January 6th. He said he found nothing. Another FBI employee looked into it and found a bunch of evidence of this person's participation in the Capitol attacks. They're saying, you know, one of the witnesses Jordan is putting forward has hindered investigations into January 6th. Another one declined to participate in a a SWAT uh, attempt to arrest someone else who was there on January 6th and went to the FBI tried to download FBI files on an unauthorized flash drive. So these are the men that Jim Jordan is going to be putting forward in part to make the case that the FBI is somehow weaponized against conservatives. You can imagine Democrats have had a lot of issues with the legitimacy of these whistleblowers. But Jordan is standing behind these guys. You know, his staff says that this is just the FBI's desperate attempt to salvage their reputation, Poppy.
0: Sarah Murray, keep us posted as this now public hearing is underway. Thank you. Yes.
18: This morning,
1: South Carolina is now one step closer to banning most abortions after six weeks. The Republican-controlled House passed that abortion bill last night after nearly 24 hours of an intense debate. State lawmakers have attempted to pass a ban three times already there in South Carolina. If it's passed this time, South Carolina would join almost every other state in the South besides Virginia, as you can see here on the map, with strict abortion bans. The bill would ban most abortions after early cardiac activity is detected and with pretty few exceptions. The exceptions include, quote, fatal fetal anomalies. That means heart or nerve defects and for the health and the life of the mother. There's also exceptions for up to 12 weeks for cases of rape, incest or underage pregnancy. It's now heading back to the state Senate for another vote. And that is where three Republican lawmakers, a Democrat and an independent, have so far banded together to block a near-total ban on abortion. They call themselves the sister senators. They are the only women in the South Carolina Senate filibustering for hours each time that a ban has come up in their chamber. They say banning abortion is about having control over women.
29: Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control It's always about control, plain and simple. And in the Senate, the males all have control. We, the women, have not asked for, as the senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. We don't need it.
1: That was Republican South Carolina State Senator Sandy Sen. She joins us. Now, good morning and thank you for being here. As I just said, this bill is now headed to the Senate in South Carolina. Are you going to oppose this bill?
29: Well, of course, I'm going to oppose it. This will be the fourth time our body has taken up an abortion bill since September, and we are supposed to be part-time legislators. We have failed to pass any laws to help us combat fentanyl. There are many things that we need to do in our state. Instead, the overwhelmingly white male Republican majority is going to focus again and again on abortion. So we will, all of the five women will be fighting against this bill. The big nail biter is going to be whether the three men who stood with us last time, whether they will stick with us. And they're going to be studying today the bill that the House passed back to us. I heard you mention a minute ago that um, there was longer time for minors. That's not correct. Uh, We passed a bill that would give minors up to, well, without our vote, of course, up to um, six weeks, I mean, an additional six weeks, so up to 12 weeks. But no, the bill that the House passed back to us takes it back to six, and they have to go to a doctor twice. So in order to get an abortion in South Carolina, the female is going to have to go to the doctor two times, is going to have to get an ultrasound, verify that there is no heartbeat, and wait an hour while she's given literature and things of that nature and asked if she wants to see the ultrasound and things of
1: that nature. Thank you for clearing that up, because that is a very important distinction of what this bill looks like and what they are going to be voting on. And you mentioned the three men that have so far stood with you all when it comes to these votes. What is your sense of what have you had any conversations with them about about what which direction they're leaning on this?
29: Well, I've had a lot of conversations with them. But, of course, their response was understandably that they have to see the final product. Now they're going to get the final product. But the House added 14 pages to our bill. And the side-by-side is really kind of difficult to read. But we have now given them some bullet points, and they're going to be making their decisions. One of our concerns is we think one of our colleagues who was called up to active duty, that would be uh, Senator Stephen Goldfinch out of Georgetown County, uh, he he apparently might be getting permission from Commander Snow to allow him to come back and vote on this issue. So I guess I mean, maybe abortion is a national emergency at this point. I don't know if he comes back and votes and he will vote again. He will vote with the bill. That means that um, they will only need to flip one mail. So it's going to be a nail biter.
1: You're one of just five women in the South Carolina Senate. Your state ranks 47th when it comes to the proportion of women who make up the state legislature. What are your conversations like with the other men, the ones who have voted each time for these near total abortion bans?
29: You know we are um, cordial people. I was listening earlier in the hour, hearing some Congress people screaming and shouting on the streets. That that's not going to ever happen in our chamber like that. We are definitely more genteel. Uh, we are we are forceful and we are direct, but we don't have bad behavior. So even when we're face to face, we're we're not going to be ugly. We just disagree on this topic, and really we disagree severely. Yes, we only have about fourteen percent of of females even though we're 50, we have 51% females in the state and um in the senate it's even worse with there being only five of us and three republicans and by the way we received yet another high level threat to take us out in 2024 just yesterday in fact the bill's main sponsor over in the house said that he really wants to go back he doesn't like the six week ban he wants a zero ban and the only way to do that would be to eliminate those who voted against this in 2024. And we were called out specifically, uh, I was called out by my party leader, Senator Massey out of Edgefield, um, saying that he would have an answer for me in 2024. And then we also had a guy who's running for Republican Party chair of South Carolina. He's the. Um, he said that basically he singled out the three women and said, we need to start by taking out three women. And, um, you know, didn't mention the men, but I I certainly don't want my men counterparts who helped us to get targeted just because we have been. But, you know, it's yeah. just sad when you think five women in the Senate. I mean, that's too many, really.
1: And you have been been targeted threatened with primaries. You've been called you y'all the five sister senators have been called baby killers. I know a, a pro-life group sent plastic spines to your offices. I mean, what is it like to, to get that kind of backlash to your position?
29: Well, you know, I think all of us are tough. You don't go into politics unless you kind of have basically tough skin. And the the spine thing, my sister senators, they were offended by it. And some of the males got it too, by the way, but they would never tell anybody because, you know, that really would offend them. But I just thought it was a joke. I mean, they called themselves students for life. I go around and speak to students all the time. I have a son who's a senior in high school. And I know for a fact they overwhelmingly uh, support access. And so I don't know where there was only like six of them running around the Capitol giving out these spines, but I got mine. I fact, I keep it kind of like a trophy on the desk because I am okay with my vote. I'm okay with my God. Um, and just because they believe something different, that's fine. Uh, it, it really was a little silly. Um, the students need to go back to school because uh, obviously you have to have a spine if you're going to buck your own party. Mm-hmm.
1: South Carolina State Senator Sandy Sen, you've said you and your sister senators, as you call them, the five women, will oppose this measure. We'll see what your Republican, or what your male colleagues do. Thank you for your time this morning.
0: Thank you, ma'am. That was really interesting. We'll keep following that very closely what happens there. This just in. Sources tell CNN Florida Governor Ron DeSantis expected to make it official next week, officially entering the 2024 presidential race sometime next week. He'll file paperwork with the Federal Election Commission declaring his candidacy and is expected to make his official announcement from his hometown the following week. DeSantis is also gathering top fundraisers in South Florida. They are expected and expecting, I should say, the campaign to be officially launched once they arrive so that they can begin calling donors. Caitlin.
1: And while we wait for that later today, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, is planning to meet with bank CEOs in Washington. One of the top topics, of course, is gonna be the debt ceiling. Up next, we're gonna speak with Congresswoman and Senate candidate Katie Porter about that looming deadline to get a debt ceiling agreement done. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: America is not a deadbeat nation. We pay our bills. The nation has never defaulted on its debt, and it never will.
0: President Biden reiterating the U.S. defaulting just not an option. But the days before. Potential default as early as June 1st are quickly slipping away. And while lawmakers on both sides have recently expressed some optimism that a deal could be reached, sources tell CNN that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet today with the CEOs of some of the biggest banks in the country, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America, also Jane Frazier of Citigroup. We're told the talks will likely focus on the debt ceiling and the recent banking crisis. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman of California, Katie Porter. She's a member of the House Oversight and Economic Committees. Also is a candidate for the U.S. Senate seat currently occupied by Dianne Feinstein. Good morning. Good morning. OK, so if you were Janet Yellen and you were meeting with Jamie Dimon, Jane Frazier, Brian Moynihan today, what would you say?
30: Um, I would tell them to pressure the Republican uh, officials that they donated to and that they funded to do right by our economy. Um, At the end of the day, this is really coming down to are Republicans willing to hijack the economy and harm the American people in order to try to get their political um, goals across the finish line for our future budget?
0: Are you sure it's fair to just say it's only on the Republicans at this point? We've got 13 days, and it appears that the president is willing to give a little a little bit on work requirements for welfare. Here's what he said yesterday.
2: I'm not going to accept any work requirements that's going to impact on medical health needs of people. I voted years ago for the work requirements that exist, but it's possible there could be a few others, but not anything of any consequence.
0: Are you willing to support a bill that does include some increased work requirements for things like SNAP, food stamps or TANF, cash aid, maybe Medicaid?
30: These work requirements are designed to punish people who need help. They're, everybody would love to be having a full-time job, being able to make ends meet, and not being relying on these government programs. The research is really clear. These work requirements simply don't work to force people into the marketplace. What they do do is inflict harm on children and our seniors. Wow. I think President Biden should not should hold the line on this. this we want every American who can work to do so, but the best way to have them do do that is to make sure that they have access to the food and medicine they need to thrive and be able to go out into the marketplace.
0: Just, just, just the point of fact here congresswoman, I know you know this because you know this stuff you read these bills very very carefully, but the GOP bill that passed the house on this um, does when it comes to the Medicaid work requirement they include, included does not apply to anyone caring for dependent children. It does not apply to anyone caring for an ailing relative. It doesn't apply to pregnant women. And the CBO, the nonpartisan CBO scored it and said, look, if you do that and add these work requirements, it would result in $109 billion in savings over 10 years. Still, the president shouldn't budget all. I mean,
30: it's up to the president. I think to come to the table and see what we're going to have to do. The alternative of going over um, the debt ceiling and and being able to be in default on our loan our bills is really really terrible. But I do think there's a lot of work for the president to do. To socialize with Democrats, what these work requirements would look like, because there's a lot of things in the Republicans' bill that are truly, truly terrible. There may be room on some of these things, but we're not having those conversations okay. yet.
0: Well, that's that's important. What you just said, there may be room on some of these things, right? That's not an inflexible position. And would you agree? Look, you're you're an economist. You're you're a, you're a lawyer. You're an expert. Watching your hearings with anyone in the financial community, we know you're an expert on this stuff. Is it your assessment that a default would be more catastrophic for those most vulnerable in this country than some of these requirements in the Republican bill?
30: I'm not going to have a debate about which kind of terrible policymaking would be worse because we have a clear, better alternative here. Look, Congress appropriated this money. We spent it. It's like a customer who goes to the cash register and rings up at the grocery store. You can't later, when the credit card bill arrives, decide you're not going to pay it. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what Congress is trying to do here. So rather than having this debate about which thing is more harmful to those who are vulnerable in the country, we have a clearer, better option, which is to raise the debt ceiling. Look, Congress created this debt ceiling by making spending decisions. We have to live by those spending decisions and what? raise the debt ceiling. If we want to have a debate about future spending, mm-hmm. about what we, how we should shape our social service programs going forward, that's a debate I'm ready to have.
0: Okay, let's move on, if we could, to the banking crisis, which I suspect they'll also talk about in this meeting today. I wonder how you feel. You have been on the committees where the big bank CEOs, including Jamie Dimon, have testified before you. uh, J.P. Morgan obviously swooped in and bought up the assets of First Republic Bank. Were you happy to see that or did it concern you that it made America's biggest bank bigger?
30: Well, one of the concerns I have with regard to the sale of Silicon Valley Bank is that the regulators did not require Silicon Valley Bank when they were sold to First Citizens. They did not require First Citizens to honor no. the community benefit agreement to First lend Republic, to was... low-income people. So it's, I think it's really important that when we do these deals, when we do let big banks get bigger, mm-hmm. we don't let them off the hook to serve the communities in
0: which these smaller banks are located in. But when it comes to the First Republic purchase, the most recent purchase by, by J.P. Morgan, are you comfortable with that? I mean,
30: I don't think once a bank is in failure, I think you don't have any good choices. And so I think the goal is, I think if JP Morgan was willing to buy it and and they're going to do a good job with it, that was the best choice we had at the time. But the forward looking goal is to stop these failures from happening. Sure. Because once they do, there are no good alternatives. No question.
0: Okay, let me just end on this. You're running for the Senate seat in California, currently occupied by Senator Dianne Feinstein. She returned to the Senate after a two and a half month absence. And she was uh, answering some questions this week from reporters. And I want to play you a moment that has a lot of people concerned. Here it was.
28: What have you heard?
6: What have I heard
9: about what?
6: About your return. How have
4: they felt about your no, return?
9: No, I haven't been gone.
4: Okay. <laughs> um,
9: you should follow. I haven't been gone. I've been working.
26: You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've, I've been, been voting. Know, Please,
9: like, yeah, either
12: no or don't.
0: It appears she doesn't recall she's been gone for two and a half months. And I should note her office, despite us reaching out, has not corrected that or said, no, here is what she actually meant. Does that concern you? And do you believe she is fit to serve in the Senate right now?
30: Well, I obviously think California needs a different senator going forward. That's why I was the first to announce even before Senator Feinstein had made her decision about whether to run for re-election. I launched my campaign back in January Mm -hmm. because I think this change is overdue. I haven't spoken to Senator Feinstein, so I'm not able to comment on on how she's doing and her recovery. But I do think that the Senate and our country needs to look forward and think about how are we going to address these issues going forward? Um, We're going to have more people who are absent. We are going to have more people who fall sick. We are going to have more senators who age given the the age of the body. And I think we need some forward-looking policies, not just focus on Senator Feinstein, although I understand the concerns, but really look at how are we going to deal with this structurally. This is unfortunately not the first time that we've had the situation where we had a, a real concerns about how senators are um, recovering and whether they're able to come back and really do the job.
0: Just to clarify, are you suggesting an age requirement or an age cutoff? I don't think it's necessarily an
30: age cutoff. Um, I, I think that there's not necessarily that's not necessarily the right approach. But okay. I do think that we are going to have people who exit the body for short periods of time. Look, we just had Senator Fetterman who was in the yes. hospital for a couple months. Um, we've had senators who have had children. Mm-hmm. Um, if we elect more women, we might have more. <laughs> um, and so I, I think we do need to have some policies like every other workplace in America mm-hmm. to think about what are you going to do when someone becomes yeah. infirm, either for the short term or the long term.
0: It's a very fair point. Who steps in and does the job when you can't? Um, Congresswoman, thank you as always. Congrats again on the new book, I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. It's a fascinating and frank read. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Caitlin.
1: Speaking of a different kind of lawmaker, the mayor of Down sat down with CNN. Sarah Seidner to talk about his nearly 20-year reign on the Food Network. We'll show you Sarah's interview next. Guy Fieri.
21: But now the dude that you saw 20 years ago, and the guy that you see now, maybe for a little bling upgrade, but that's about it. I think the hair might be the same color. I'm gonna do a gorgonzola tofu sausage terrine that we served over a mildly poached ostrich egg. Now, since we're in the wine country, I'll be serving that on, on grape nuts and done with a delicious pickled herring mousse right on top, and oh I know, delicious. It sends shivers up my spine. <laughs> No, seriously,
1: folks, real food for real people. The hair, the flair, it was all there. That was Guy Pieri in 2005, before diners, drive-ins, and dives, before he was anointed mayor of Flavortown, before he became one of Food Network's most bankable and recognizable stars. He now has half a dozen shows on the network, including Guy's All-American Road Trip, which is returning for a second season on June 2nd. CNN's Sarah Seidner sat down with him and asked, is he really the same guy as he was on that audition tape? It seems
9: like. Do you call it Triple D? Is that the wrong
21: thing to say? I called it Triple D because I couldn't say Diners, drive ins and Dives. I'd say what the fans say all the time. Like, I watch that Divers, Dine-Ins, and Dining show you do. <laughs> I'm like, like, oh, yeah, that one. No, <laughs> I really, I called it Triple D because when I would do the rap for the show or some... Intro to the show, and I would get it wrong. I mean, I had to retake the entire intro or or outro. And so I just came up with Triple D, and they said, I don't think you can say that. I'm like, well, let's just try. And then we're like, hey, we don't care. Triple D. So it it has become Triple D. Okay.
9: Restaurants and people that work at restaurants got hammered by the closures during
21: COVID. Unprecedented. Have we recovered? There are so many facets to this. I think there's some good sides of it. I think you look at outdoor dining, and people that never had an outdoor dining, and now they get to take some parking spots in their city or their community. Yes, there still are bumps and bruises, and there still, there unfortunately are some restaurants that are gone. And that's the toughest thing for me as a chef and a restaurant owner and the host of the show and, and a consumer. But um, we are rebuilding. It is getting better. We are going forward. And the best way people can people can be involved is to support restaurants uh, are the fabric of the community in so many ways and a tent pole, they're the place you go to celebrate the good and the bad when you're
9: going out to shoot triple d I don't, I feel a little weird saying that but that's what, i'm i'm hanging with the people well, you're, you're in I'm, you're I'm, in you're in the team okay um when you go to shoot it how do you find all these places how do you figure out okay this one yeah this one now this is really good
21: you promise you won't tell It just just between I mean, you and we, me
9: we are on camera
21: okay and well we- if nobody will tell it's a lot of this with a dartboard and a map and just with it. Yeah. That's the secret sauce. That, well, That's it. That's really the whole, that's the genesis. Yeah. Now I'll tell you how it started. One, it used to be a lot of fan base. Okay. I would say I'm going somewhere. And of course, every person I knew would tell me where I need to go. Then it turned into, so that fan base, then it turned into actual fans writing and saying, you got to go to this area. Mm. Now what happens is I travel so much and I tell my team, Hey, listen, I'm thinking I'm going to Detroit in six months let's see what you got so then now we'll take a a full sampling between friends families past triple D Mm -hmm. locations um, articles written so forth and we'll just kind of it really becomes this gigantic NFL draft
9: it's like a social media
21: experiment it is crazy so by the time it finally makes it to me it's usually about 20 locations make it to me
9: I happen to come by your 2005 audition for the food network thank you it's
12: been great having me
21: (laughs)
9: And I watched it more than once, just so you know. Um, but it was authentically
21: you. When One, 100% you, smart. Right?
9: So, 100% smart Alec, as my grandma would say. Yes,
21: smart Alec. That's what I meant to say.
9: But when, I, when you look at that, have you ever gone back to look at it? And are you the same guy? Do you feel like I'm that same guy, even though it's almost been 20 years?
21: Uh, there is no difference at all. My friends that, you know, my still my closest friends then are my closest friends now. And it's even funny. I was showing my son, Ryder, who's 17, who was just born when, uh, the, when I hit the finale of Food Network Star. And he's watched it. And he goes, so you were doing all of this <laughs> even before I was born? He goes, this is how you've always acted? It, it, it's not an act. It's just I think life is very funny. Mm-hmm. I think that everything should have some kind of, You should, I mean, you should enjoy it and laugh at it and and poke fun with it. And I mean, things to take serious as well. But when I had that opportunity to put in that demo tape, I'm saying, I really meant what I said. Listen, there's a real serious side of food and there's a real fun side of food. And and I want to be the fun side of food. But no, the dude that you saw 20 years ago (laughs) and the guy that you see now, maybe for a little bling upgrade, but that's about it. I think the hair might be the same color. I want to ask you about
9: when you're out on these shoots because I have watched and thought, I mean, I'm getting full just looking at this. Right. Do you just take a bite or do you say, screw it, I'm eating this whole
21: thing, it's so good. Well, you can't see it because of the uh, fantastic trickery of television <laughs> that we actually have a stunt eater that takes- uh, Okay, stop. <laughs> stop
9: right now. So,
21: when I go to a Triple D Joint, we vetted him so quickly, it was so far, that I know what I'm gonna take a bite of. Most likely is gonna be good, if not great, if not incredible, and there is a difference. But sometimes I take a bite I'll be like, that's great. Sometimes it'll be this is outstanding and sometimes like uh, I've seen okay. those moments. All right. So yeah. the producers have a have a have a do not recess a do not give to guy order which I'll take a couple bites and then I'll talk about it and then it'll be gone. And I'm like, "Where did that pastrami sandwich go?" And they're like, "We'll give it to you when you leave." Fair. Because otherwise I'll eat the whole thing. Yeah. And and I can't do it because I got to keep my palate open. I shoot three locations in a day. Two to three recipes per time, per location. So to keep my palate fresh so I can really taste the food. So I can really tune into what's going on. You know how you kind of get numb from food yeah, after a while. Yeah. I can't get into that space.
9: Okay. So has there ever been somewhere where you bit into something and you wanted to spit it out? We don't have to say where, but
21: it's not wired. Is
9: it's it? not wired, but you are. Damn, I knew
21: it. Um, it hasn't happened in 12 years, but it's happened. Years maybe 5 or 6 times. So, listen, I, I have I think I have one of the greatest opportunities in the world because I get to shine the light on just how alive and well America is. And we even shot outside of the country, but you know, food is the common denominator of all people. Not everybody likes all the same music or sports or politics or whatever. But we all love food. And to be the guy that gets to be the conductor, you know, to be the, to be in the middle of this whole thing and to say, "Hey, take a look." It's uh, it's blessed blessed opportunity
9: you talked about you know getting to go to all these places and you really have seen a wide swath of this country and you've talked to people while their guard is down because when you're eating and enjoying yourself it's easy to talk it's how about. We should,
18: it's anything.
21: How we should have our world summits, by the way. I, I agree. You it's- get some barbecue on the thing. You put some some Indian and yeah. in some shawarma. You yes. get some pizzas and yes. some margaritas flowing. I think we can solve a lot of the problems that we got going on these days. I'm going to have to agree with you. The great thing is, is when we talk about food, it's become so neutral. That you can bring people together that weren't typically going to be together, and you can do it over food. Even now with ethnicities, the ethnic foods that are coming mm-hmm. in, people are starting to say, "Wait a second, I don't understand these, this this background or this culture, or the music, or even the names of the spices." Right. But boy, I love Indian food, right. you know. And I'm turning people on to Indian food all the time. That's one of my favorite things. Or vegan, you know. People look at vegan with this such this. This voodoo. No, I'm sharing it with people, and they're going, wait a second. We don't even go to the restaurant because it's a vegan restaurant. We go because it's delicious.
0: Gosh, that was fascinating. I love what he said. I we mean, no one knows food better. Food. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That was great. Love that interview from Sarah did. That's yeah. did. All right, so if you want to watch more, which I'm sure you do after seeing that, Guys, All-American Road Trip returns June 2nd, and Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives airs Fridays at 9 p.m. So, just six months ago, ChatGPT was just getting launched. It has since become one of the most popular on the planet. Just how popular? Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. You've probably noticed, over the last six months, ChatGPT has become one of the most popular websites on the planet. But industry leaders say now that AI power technology could revolutionize or destroy, no big deal, NBD, everything from democracy to education and national security. Well, we thought we'd talk a little bit more about it. This This week, the company's CEO, Sam Altman, testified in front of Congress and said AI must be regulated to avoid causing, quote, significant harm to the world. Let's talk about how popular ChatGPT has become. Joining us now, CNN Senior Data Reporter Harry Enten. So what's the number?
19: All right. This morning's number is $1.8 That was the worldwide visits to ChatGPT in the month of April, making it the 17th most visited website. My goodness gracious. And let's take a look at what surrounds it to give you a real understanding of just how popular it's become. You see ChatGPT here. Look, the Microsoft Live, your Outlook Suites at 16, TikTok at 15. Look at this, Amazon at 14, probably my favorite website so I don't actually have to go out and shop. I can just stay in my room. And here we go. This also is another key indication, right? You want people to stay on your website for a long period of time. So visit one page and leave the website or your bounce rate. On ChatGPT, it's just 17%. The top 20 websites visited average. It's 29%. So a lot of people are staying on ChatGPT for a long period of time.
1: But, of course, I mean, the assumption is most of those people are younger, I assume. My dad is certainly not checking out ChatGPT, but I am scared of what he's going to do once he discovers (laughs) it.
19: Those text messages may not be from him from now on. I'm
1: questioning the ones where the ones I get now (laughs) even are.
19: So are you familiar with ChatGPT? 50% of Americans overall are, but look at this. Under the age of 45, Mm -hmm. 65% versus age 45 and older, 41%. And I think there's this fear of a lot of people, will students cheat using ChatGPT? Very likely students will be able to use ChatGPT to cheat, 65% of Americans say yes, but look at this, children that, that live at your home among those parents, look at that, 74%. So parents are a little bit worried, guys. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, I seems to a have pretty easy thing it. to do. Maybe I'll do it this weekend. Well, I wonder if your children have. No way. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to tell Sienna about (laughs) that. Don't. (laughs) Thank you. Coming up, the world's most famous shipwreck like you've never seen it before. Yes, that one.
1: This just in, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy arriving on Capitol Hill telling CNN negotiations over the debt limit are continuing. McCarthy also offering praise of the White House, Director of Office of Management and Budget, Shalonda Young. She's been one of the key negotiators in this process, saying that he has the utmost respect for her and that she, quote, knows her numbers well. Stay with CNN, of course, as those updates continue between the two sides. Let's
0: hope they get somewhere. Meantime, you know it, the iconic scene of Jack and Rose on the bow of the Titanic. Remember that? That was 1997, folks. We are now getting an incredible look at the shipwreck that sits more than 12,000 feet below water. A new underwater scanning project captured what's described as an exact digital twin of the luxury passenger liner that sank in 1912, killing more than 1,500 people. And as you can see, the bow of the ship remains identifiable all these years. Later. So joining us now is Craig Sopin, an attorney and Titanic expert. It's great to have you. That brings back so many memories for, for so many people. Good morning.
20: Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here.
0: Well, you're a Titanic expert. What was your first reaction when you saw these scans?
20: All right. Well, this is something like we've never had before. It's really an amazing development. And uh, I would say that probably the most significant development in terms of research since the development of facial recognition software. It gives us an unbridled view of the entire ship in a 3D format, which we never had before. And it's very important that we have that and very fortunate that we have it now because the Titanic is disintegrating at an alarming rate. And at some point, all we're going to have left are images such as this. And since we're going to have what, can be considered an exact duplicate of the Titanic as it rests today. We'll be able to continue studying the ship because there's still a lot of unanswered questions and probably questions that we don't even know exist until we get into this research. For example, there were, yes?
1: Well, Craig, I didn't realize that there are still so many unanswered questions about exactly how the Titanic sank. And you say that there are questions about what damage the iceberg actually caused to the ship. So do you think you'll be able to learn more about that from these scans?
20: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, When the ship went down, there were some eyewitnesses who said, we saw the ship break in two. And a lot of people did not believe them. And then once the ship was discovered in 1985, it became apparent that they were correct. And now we'll be able to see the mechanics of how that actually occurred. The clarity, the detail of these images are absolutely incredible. You can even see, and by the way, when you're looking at this, you don't even see the murky ocean surrounding the ship, which has really been an impediment to some of the 2D images that we've taken before. But you can actually see unopened bottles of champagne and even a serial number on one of the propeller blades from the ship. So the detail is incredible. It's going to allow us to examine the mechanics of the sinking as well as what kind of damage the iceberg actually did. Everyone assumes that the iceberg just made some piercing or slashes to the starboard side of the ship. But other things could have happened as well that we just couldn't uh, determine before because the Titanic sits in a very hostile environment. And with these 3D images, we're going to be able to answer a lot of those questions Mm -hmm. once engineers really get their hands on this.
1: Wow. Totally fascinating. Unopened bottles of champagne. That's that level exactly of detail is amazing. <laughs> Craig, thank you so much. You're an expert on this. So we really appreciate your time this morning.
20: Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Craig.
1: All thank right. you all for joining
0: us. See you tomorrow. It's Friday tomorrow. Yep. CNN News Central starts right after this quick break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app.